Welcome to the podcast is dedicated to making you a faster cyclist, the Ask a Cycling Coach podcast presented by Trainer Road. I'm Coach Jonathan Lee, and we have with us Trainer Road and Cannondale's Amber Pierce. What's up, Amber? Hey, everybody. Our head coach, Chad Timmerman. Hey, everyone. And the whole gang is back together again. Nate is back from vacation. Our CEO, Nate Pearson. Hello. Okay, so we need to talk about <laughs> some poopoo talking that we're going to jump ahead and talk that three of you did. And you're going to confuse our listeners because you guys were not accurate. And, uh, okay. I kind of, I got the rebuttals and I think I remember the questions cause I listened to it, but number okay. one suspension setup, John said that was the worst suspension I've ever seen, which might've been true. <laughs> but, uh, I talked to Keegan about it and Keegan goes, I hate John's suspension. John's is like so bad. Uh, cause you have to set up like a moto and he's like, don't worry about it. And let me, let me step back a little bit. <laughs> All right, I did the tell you ride 100. Uh, that was, uh, I, it was the 50, but the race is called the tell you ride hundred. It was in Colorado. Two parts of it. One is, um, I did fly there. I had the N95 mask and then in Colorado, they did way better than Nevadans in tell you ride for social distancing. Even outside, everyone had masks off. We had all of our meals outside or in the condo, which was awesome. I still don't know if I should have done that or should not have done that separate issue. Okay. So then I had a new Epic come. I had one ride on it. Uh, and I used it for a Telluride. First, mm -hmm. I think people were saying, why should you not use a new bike for a big race? One, it's not a big race, <laughs> right? It wasn't. I mean, it, it, how, many, how, many races, how many mountain bike races have you done this year? No, but in, in terms of importance, right? We've talked about this, A, B, sure. and C races, right? And sure. you want to test things in your, your non-important races for the big races. So, yeah, yeah. This is why, this is why, uh, you guys, you're going to, you're going to tweak everyone's brains that are listening to this. So if, if you have a huge race and you're not going to have any mountain bike races between now and Cape Epic, you should take this opportunity to test different hydration, uh, nutrition, um, bikes, all that sort of stuff, tires, because you can't really ever replicate race day, um, before your big race. You can try to, but it's always a little bit different. I think the reason that it decouples a bit in this case for a lot of people is probably because it's, it's a race that you you're traveling to, you know, flying your bike to, it's like a significant thing, right? So it's like, usually in most cases, those sort of events that you would do that sort of effort for are something bigger. That's yeah. all. I mean, you're, you're totally right. I, I would have ridden the new bike too, right? Like, I think it's the right thing, but it was a great opportunity to poke fun at you too. So okay. you second point. Up. Yes. My, uh, my rebound dampening on my rear shock, I guess there's only one rear shock is, was set too high. And what that does is when it pushes down for the now mountain bikers, it came back very slowly. It didn't like bounce back fast. Uh, I rode the Epic on some local trails that I'd ride all the time. And I got PRs going up and down with that bad setup. I was doing the curb test where John, can you describe the curb test? Yeah. So you can adjust how fast your suspension returns to its fully upright position or whatever position it is with your weight on it. That's what rebound damping is. And you ride off a curb and then you basically, the, it's really hard to dial in for a lot of folks. So you ride off a curb and when your suspension compresses and then returns, if it compresses and returns and continues to bounce, then chances are you need to actually slow that return down. You add rebound dampening to do that. Now, if it goes the other side and it's basically, it drops and then it rises up very slowly, 
and you haven't gotten to the point where it bounces multiple times, then you need to speed it up. So usually what people do, this is like a good, it's like setting sag in the sense that where you set your sag, it's like the starting point, but then you adjust from there and setting rebound damping, you, you dampening, you go down until it basically, you feel that multi bounce and then you back it off one or two clicks. And then at that point, once you're there and you've gotten rid of that multi bounce, that's probably the best spot to start tuning your suspension. So that's, a, that's what I tried. And then uh, I agreed with it was too much. It was kind of made it for a really harsh uh, descending feeling. And when I got there, I was lucky as I had the US national champion there, Keegan Swenson, and he is a suspension nerd. And just in the condo, he's just like pushing on my stuff. And he's like, click, click, sit here, pump this. He's like, okay, that's good. Go ride it. And I went around and like, wow, this is amazing. It's the best there we go. I've had it set up, right? And then it was good. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's it. So it doesn't take like, like months to set up suspension, uh, especially for someone who's not super picky like me. With John, John, it takes you many rides to set your suspension up right on a new bike, right? Oh, I'm never done. It's always, it's an adventure that always continues, always <laughs> tweaking. Yep. Yeah. But yeah. I bet you for the people like Chad and Amber and I, I bet you we're not going to tweak all the time. Yeah, probably. Yeah, probably like, <laughs> for, for most people, <laughs> <Chad>. <laughs> uh, for, for most people, you get it into one spot and then it's, it's usually pretty good. And unless you change, like, like I change it per track that I'm riding, like depending on the dirt and stuff like that. But, um, even then, if it doesn't vary a whole lot, I won't change it. So, yep. And then the, the race itself at Telluride, uh, it, it's a very beautiful town. Um, it was like light sprinkles of rain. It was going to be like hero dirt. And the day before it was beautiful. And then the night before just downpour morning of downpour. And this is supposed to be a TT style, uh, bike race. And this thing, that's what it said. But then they, they let us off in like groups of 20 or 15, which was mm -hmm. a little bit of annoying, but a, a hill climb came in the first like five minutes and then it, it blew apart. But I've never ridden mud before because I don't think, especially in Reno, never choose to ride in the rain. And then two, if you ride in the trails in the mud, it like ruins our trails and it's bad form. Yeah. We have and really weird mud here. It's not for those from the UK listening. It's not like we have the chance to, you genuinely can't like if you ride in the mud in Reno, this type of dirt that we have, it collects on your bike to such a degree that your wheels actually just don't spin anymore. And that doesn't take a long time. That takes like 20 feet of trail. And suddenly your wheels have like, you know, eight inches of mud stuck to them and it saws right through your carbon fiber. It's really bad. So, uh, we don't even bother if it rains, we just don't touch the bikes and it hardly rains anyway. <laughs> so, so the first part that it was very annoying because the trails were like two clicks below my skill level. So I could have like railed them, but then as soon as it started to, when it was like super slippery, um, I felt like Bambi and ice skates again. And I did not, I don't know how to descend in wet, loose trails at all. Um, uh, yeah. halfway through, I started to feel a little bit better. Um, it was at elevation too. It started at 9,000 feet and then went up to 12,000 feet. So lead velvet esque, but not as high, a little bit high. Um, I crashed, I think six times, uh, cause of mud one bad clip though. So one bad crash, the, the Epic sits a little bit lower, um, just a little teeny bit. And I've been pedal striking so much because of that, because it's different from where I'm used to. And I was, uh, I was going fast on a descent and, um, I put a foot out and I hit a rock and I went down so hard. Uh, I like hit my head and I got a headache. I Oof. messed up my, my shifter. I had to stop later on cause it was like falling off and tighten it. But anyways, I finished. So that was good. Wow. Um, but in terms of like 
learning new skills. I, I definitely did. And I think I've, I've gotten very comfortable with sliding around by riding in the mud that much. Um, that's, that's basically the whole race. Very cool. Keegan won it by like a ton. 18 um, minutes, but hold on. We're, we're skipping your result here. This is super impressive. I, I thought you did. You got ninth, right? Yeah. But how many people were there? Like 10? No, I think there were, I don't know. I don't remember, but I remember seeing definitely more than 20. Anyways, Nate, Another it's thing impressive. About mountain bike that's, that's bad or not bad, but annoying is it was 19 to 40 and I'm 38 and yes. like 40 plus I would have been like, what, what, I don't know, very high, yeah. but I, I didn't have very much. Uh, I, uh, I was probably 30 minutes slower than I could have been which was annoying. Hey, you're, you're so used to us giving you a hard time. It's difficult yeah. for you to take a compliment. No, you yeah, guys just don't know. It was the, the person beat me by like an hour. It's not like a, it's just, there wasn't a lot of people. There's, you, but you that's got what the you, race was. Uh, so stop with this for a little bit here. Cause like, <laughs> like seriously, like you rode really well, you were passing people on descents in sketchy conditions, weren't you? Mm -hmm. That is something that absolutely you would not have been doing even like a year ago. Like, that's, that's a huge improvement. And this is a good example of like, we're, we're always, as soon as we do like, or whenever something good happens and I understand, like you still want to stay focused on constant improvement and you don't get, you know, satisfied with where you are and just stay there. But at the same time, it's important to recognize because you came from the point where when you first started riding mountain bikes, where any, even riding those trails would have been impossible. You would have walked the majority of them then in, in dry conditions, let alone wet conditions. So You've come a long way, Nate. And I think, I think you should like, and I'm sure you probably have taken it for confidence, but for everybody else listening to this, it's a good example. Don't be too harsh on yourself and make yeah, sure that I, you point out what you did well. I, that's what I said. I said, I'm like way better at sliding and it was like good skills increase. I'm just saying the ninth isn't anything impressive uh, as a result, but I definitely got better and I'm glad I did it. And I got my, my skills increased and everything you just said. It's just not when the winner beats you by an hour, uh, and you don't get to perform like to where you would have, if it was dry. It's a little bit of uh, frustrating, but, uh, I don't know if the winner beats you by an hour on a, but I did, I did five and he did four. Yeah, I can understand. Yeah. Still not so fast. <clears throat> I think you did fantastic. So I'm impressed. I'm trying to find the results here, but it's a complicated thing. Interneting is hard. Right. So, well, you know, I mean, I think it's fair. You can ground yourself in the reality of the big picture at the same time as celebrating your own personal accomplishments. So good job. That's Nate. what I'm trying to do. Yeah. yeah. It's all, it's all in the progression for Cape Epic. Yeah. And that's fine. Um, that sense. the other, last thing I want to say is that my, my new, I guess it's gone it's come and gone. My 371 FTP. What I did, and I wanna this is like a I think Chad might have experienced this too a little bit, but I got it and then I was nailing the train road workouts. And then I was getting I was so strong, I was like, I'm gonna get that calm from Brandon. The one where he like jumped in on us and in like poached the gum. I mean, Pete and I were gonna do it. I went so hard on that on a weekend ride, and we went deep. It was it was all out. The next workout that I did, I sort of did it, but then didn't finish it. And then I like, but that was also very hard. I buried myself and I kind of like, I kept doing these hard outside rides and it would take away from my, my structured rides. And I couldn't, I didn't balance them enough. You know what I mean? I did too big so that I couldn't be consistent. And then by not being able to finish my weekday rides, I kind of fell back in the progression. And then, uh, and then I did tell you ride, which would which had a taper and then I had to recover after it. 
And then I took a week off. So I'm probably about 250 at the moment for FTP, but it's uh, 350. I'm, I'm just joking. It's a joke. Um, I'm just <laughs> okay. saying I take time off. I looked at, I did do yeah, for, go ahead. That's really good. I was just going to say, I almost feel like you're, I almost feel like you're jumping ahead or reading ahead because we are going to talk about this very thing. So uh, yeah. rather yeah. than give a reply now, I'll wait till it folds into the, the reply to a question. Am I normalized power? Anticipation. I love it. <laughs> just mountain biking there. for uh, Telluride for 449 was 241, which is, at elevate so for five hours two forty one but elevation I think I'm pretty happy with that and for um, mountain biking mountain bikers know your your normalized power is always so much lower uh, mm-hmm. right John than like a road race yeah it just doesn't yeah it doesn't rep it it does a better job of that than average power but it still doesn't do a good job of representing what it actually is yeah Nate, Nate there were twenty nine people in your race and you got ninth uh, how many people didn't make it I guess that's... Uh, in terms of DNFs, there were three DNFs and then there were five <laughs> DNSs. And the reason I bet that they DNSed is because something you didn't mention, it was freezing cold, wasn't it, in the morning? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So um, I wish, because I, I had a Rafa rain vest on mm-hmm. and then I had like arm warmers on and they were like uh, synthetic. I wish there was an arm warmer that when it gets wet, <laughs> it could stay warm. John, you should make something like that. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I haven't mentioned anything like this before, but Merino wool accomplishes that specific thing. Yeah. <clears throat> Unfortunately, Nate's allergic, so he's not able to. Um, but yeah, yeah, that's, uh, it looked freezing. Just looking at all the pictures of the riders, it did not, it looked pretty miserable. So I'm sure that's why the DNSs happened there. A lot of folks were probably yeah. deciding, yeah, I don't want to do this. For the 102, it was a two-loop course, and there's so many oh. people just at one loop saying, nope, I'm coming back. I'm coming out. That's kind of mean when they do that. Yeah. Yeah, that's why – sorry, this is jumping years ahead. I know Chad said we were jumping ahead in a question, but this is jumping years <laughs> ahead. That's why I'm questioning the whole thought of us doing any sort of like uh, – we were thinking about doing Ironman courses, but I think most of them had loops in them, in the run at least. And, yeah, I don't Ooh, think I want to do that. <laughs> mentally tough. tough yes yeah that would be especially really on the run yeah no I when was, i did court lane i almost quit twice once on the because each transition you can quit too because you're right there you're like oh i don't have to just get off my bike and sit down i'm not a runner yeah exactly uh, we got a suggestion by the way that we should look at iron man austria uh when we do iron man eventually you yes. said that the, the lake is like gorgeous that you swim in and it's nice, smooth, calm, perfectly calm water. Mm-hmm. And then, um, yeah, but I'm not sure. It seems like if it's in Austria, chances are it's probably going to have some hills to it, but I could be mm. wrong. <laughs> Just, yeah. I don't think there's very much flat in Austria. So, um, <clears throat> a couple of things really quick, the successful athletes podcast. First of all, if you're joining us on YouTube right now, thank you so much. Give us a thumbs up and we will answer some of the live questions that you support a little or submit a little later. So go ahead and get busy in the chat. And if you are listening to this, you should totally listen to the successful athletes podcast. Tons of people are listening to it now. It's growing constantly and we're having awesome episodes. This week was an episode with Sonia Looney and we talked to her not about mountain biking in particular, not about pro racing, 24 hour racing, anything like that, but how she balances everything because she's an author, she's a speaker. Uh, she's an advocate for a lot of different things that end up taking a lot of like time and appointments. She's now a mother. She also has to manage all the sponsorships and everything else for her career. And she's a pro mountain biker and she has a relationship with her husband and they're homeowners. Like, you know, so she's one of us in a lot of ways in that regard. Like she doesn't just, just ride her bike. Right. And I do that with air quotes. Um, not that many pros just ride their bikes, but 
we talk about how she balances it all in particular, how going through the process of pregnancy and, and motherhood and everything else has adjusted her training and how that's changed along the way. Super interesting conversation. And of course, Sonia just like nailed it 10 out of 10, like always, cause she's such a pro with this. Oh, sort of good. So good. So, um, so you got to listen to that one. Once again, the successful athletes podcast, we'll have a link below in the description so you can access that podcast and check it out. It is a separate one. Um, and then also we had an update with uh, group workouts. Nate, do you want me to say this? I know you've been on vacation. Um, so I don't want to put you on the spot. Um, but now it's basically what you can do before when you would do a group workout, you would share it by sending like a little code to your friend and your friend would input that code. Now you actually get a link that you can just send to somebody when they click that link, it will actually uh, give them everything that they need to be able to join the workout right there. As long as they're a trainer road, a subscriber, of course, Nate, you seem like you want to jump in. No, keep going. Okay. Yeah. And then the other cool thing is you can now schedule your group workouts at a specific time on your calendar, which is really neat. So let's say you have friends that always do this sort of morning ride routine. You can schedule that thing for 6.30 AM, whatever the time is, uh, insert whatever time for whatever occasion you can now schedule your group workouts on your calendar, which is really sweet because it'll just make it a lot easier for you and your friends to be able to keep track of things and make sure you don't miss them. Yeah. So, so bearing the lead a little bit you can schedule any workout so now before oh, yeah. when you when you have a workout scheduled you could only say it at like you know this day now I've, I've gone through and done this you can do it at a specific time which is very cool um there are a couple things that we're going to add soon and i'm just going to commit to them right now because they're going to happen and uh, brandon's going to freak out but we are uh, going to make it so that you can do it for a plan so like every monday i, r I ride at 6 a.m so you can make all mondays at 6 a.m and two the other thing that Supposedly there's an engineering issue with this. So um, I have to, I'm gonna have a meeting tomorrow about it, but it should flow to Google Calendar. So that when you, for those who don't know, you can sync, you can add a feed of your Google, I, or your, sorry, Trader Road calendar to Google, iCal, or Outlook so that it kind of overlays on your normal work or life calendar. And what's really cool then is if you have that, you can see them everywhere. And then you can give your friends a link to those workouts that you want to do with them and they can RSVP to it. So when they click on it, you can then see if they're gonna join, like who actually says that they want to join this group workout. Because one of the issues is you do a group workout and you're like, is anyone gonna show up? But I think what, just like a group ride, if one other person shows up, you're like way more likely to be there and especially start at the same time. Because ever had it where you say you're gonna train at 7 a.m. And if there's no one else there, you start at like 7.45 or 8 or 8.30 or sometimes 10.30 no, or it just gets never. pushed. never. Never, right? <laughs> but when everyone goes, we roll at 7 and they actually do roll at 7, like you're there at like 6.30 so you yeah. don't get dropped. For sure. Yeah, so that's the, that's the idea on that, available everywhere. Awesome. Cool. And always check out trainerroad.com because we're always, you know, we talk about this pretty often, uh, constant improvement. It's a thing that we personally try to embody all of us here at Trainer Road, but then also as a company as well. But all of our feature sets, all of our products, we always think of like, all right, next step, next step, next step. So we're always making them better. So sometimes uh, giant leaps. Yes. Not just small steps. Uh, Amber, we need to talk about something before we get to questions because you <laughs> finally rode a mountain bike. I saw pictures I of it. I didn't know if you were like trolling and I was like, I was like, I wonder if this photo is like years old or something, you know, and she just like posted it, but you actually, you, you went mountain biking. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I took a whole week now. and rode for a whole week on mountain bikes and it was super fun. What'd you learn? Yeah. Let's, let's talk about it. <clears throat> Cause you have a kind of big race coming up in the spring, you know, kind of big. Yeah. So, um, it was the first time I've been on a mountain bike in many, many years. Uh, so it was, it was really fun in that regard. Just like a fresh, new, different challenge. Um, so I really enjoyed that. And 
one of the things that I really wanted this week to be a complete focus on skill work, right? Because obviously I have a good engine. I'm pretty confident that I can build that out and I know how to build that out. But the skills on a mountain bike are so different from the, from what they are on a road bike that I really want to start laying a good foundation for that sooner than later. Um, and I know, for example, <laughs> what it takes to get to a world-class level of skills on the road bike. And I have no delusion that I'm going to be able to achieve that on the mountain bike, possibly ever. But I would like to get to a point where my skills are both sufficient and reliable <laughs> enough to uh, to handle Cape Epic. So that was sort of my goal with this is there was no fitness goal. And the nice thing about it was I'd done a really good build on the road bike going into this with my plan. I think I did, I did a build phase and I did part of a base phase. Um, so I was really fit. So I was fit enough that skills could be 100% of my focus and my fitness wasn't a limiter for me, which meant that, for example you know, there was no issue in terms of riding out the distance I needed to, to get to the technical sections of the trail that I wanted to session. The sessioning of a section of trail itself wasn't a big deal, even if it was steep. Um, And then I wasn't, I didn't have to worry about any distance or power or time goals. In fact, I didn't even ride with a computer, if you can believe that. Uh, (laughs) Nate Nate and I were thinking that the reason you did that was just to mess with, mess with our heads. It was some mind games that you were playing. I I even typed something out in Slack. I was like, so don't post on our Strava. Is that going to like a mind game? Cause I wanted to see how your times compared to other local people. Mm-hmm. Um, but not even in your pocket. That seems crazy. Yeah. No, <laughs> not even in my even pocket. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, so at this point again, like I really want to focus on the skill and for me, the progression of skill at this point isn't necessarily going to be translating to higher speed. So I don't want to be setting goals for myself right now that are beyond sort of the, the step that I am the step where I am right at this moment. So meeting myself where I am. Um, but I did spend a lot of time on the bike. I spent a lot of time on the bike. And again, like because the fitness was there, I was able to focus on really learning. So the way I looked at it was the more time I could spend on the bike, the more I would learn. So every pedal stroke on the bike was teaching me something about how the bike responds to the terrain, sort of where the bike, you know, where the handlebars end is really different from where the road bike handlebars end. (laughs) Um, And we rode two times a day, sometimes up to five or six hours a day. And that was really great because that gave me tons of time to focus and work on skills, but I wasn't so fatigued that I wasn't able to, to like really accumulate the lessons that I was learning while I was on the bike. So that was really cool. Um, Yeah. So there was the, the, the fitness helped me have energy for focus and learning. Um, And then it also meant that that process of focus and learning was more fun than it would have been otherwise. (laughs) I I just think I, I I found a distill what makes Amber so great. It's Amber has low ego, but ego, but high competitiveness where I think a lot of (laughs) men have high ego and high competitiveness. Cause what she just said, I, I, I should have done this before about descending and practicing skills actually without Strava, because you don't get that, that like, Ooh, I want to beat this time by three seconds. Right. Mm-hmm. You're just mm-hmm. within yourself. I want to be really, really good on the skills and that will make you faster overall in the end without having to get that ego boost of Strava of getting that faster thing. That's I've unlocked Amber, at least one aspect <laughs> of Amber. Uh, <laughs> or you can just pretend so cool. Strava doesn't exist and just not <laughs> hold it in but any just, real regard. Let's be fair. That's really hard to do. <laughs> It is you because that people, <laughs> people want to make you painfully aware of the fact that it does exist. That's, yeah. that's really but it the, is good for, the gist it, of it. Strava is good for comparing your own that's times true. too. So I can, mm-hmm. I can look at my descents Candy. on a, a course over three years and I'm like, well, I'm, I'm literally twice as fast as I used to be. 
which is, right. is pretty cool. But just yeah. in the moment of learning, I don't have to push against that edge. That's what Amber's doing where I'm like, I got to PR every single time. But see, Amber right. talks about resting, uh, doing these the sessioning in a state of low fatigue, which is highly mm-hmm. productive. I mean, when you're trying to train habits and establish, I mean, the what you want to bring to the race course, it, it makes perfect sense. At some point, you're going to have to apply that to a fatigue state. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I feel like yeah. Pete, Pete and I have already jumped into that. So, so for whatever reason, <laughs> we keep going with Jonathan on these two long rides, such that the tail end of the ride, I mean, we rode down the road coming back Mount Rose. There's so much good trail coming down Mount Rose, but I was so cooked that the yeah. only way I was getting back in one piece was to ride down the road. And when we did duck onto the trail for a brief period of time, I crashed twice. Oh, so I'm, I'm basically taking the the exact opposite approach. What doing right now. <laughs> well, that's, that's a really good point. And that was actually, this was like all part of my plan, right? So to your point, there will be, there will come a time where I will want to take a section of trail and see how much faster I can do it on repeating it. But right now I'm not there yet, right? Like right now I'm still like, I'm still trying to develop the habit of being light on my hands. I'm still to, trying to sense where my center of gravity is over the bike and where, you know, how to, how to adjust that given the terrain. And once I get to that point, then I can start thinking about like, okay, which of these lines is going to be faster as opposed to how do I just get through this section of trail safely and how do I learn how the bike is responding underneath me? So I'm, mm. I'm with you on that. That'll be a, a further down the road progression, but as it should be. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I had this goal with this, this trip was specifically to establish good habits, exactly what Chad said. And there were two, two facets of that. One was good handling uh, good handling habits. So I really, since I'm kind of starting from scratch here, I have an opportunity to avoid developing bad habits, which is one of the things I want to do. So focusing on the good habits and then also mental good habits too. And this is something that I've definitely learned the hard way on the road, but I really want to apply all those lessons that I learned the hard way and not make those mistakes again. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So with the handling, it was, it was really, you know, sessioning in the low state of fatigue allowed me to really focus and notice, you know, when you're tired, it's hard to notice when you're making a mistake sometimes, but this was really just like, I was laser focused on, you know, when am I getting heavy on my hands? Why am I getting heavy on my hands? Can I do that section of trail again without getting heavy on my hands? Little things like that, that are really not sexy, but they're so effective and they're so important because as I start to accumulate skill down the road, this is going to be sort of the foundation and form the keystone for everything that comes after. And then the mindset foundation, I think, is an important one too. And, and Chad, you mentioned that you chose to go down the road because <laughs> you're so tired. It wasn't a good idea to do the trail. That's a really important skill to learn too. And that was something that became pretty apparent. And this is part of the reason that we rode twice a day as opposed to just doing one big long ride. Because if I had a nice long rest between rides, then the second ride I could start fresh again. And I was able to, you know, again, you bring that that state of fatigue down and then you can really focus and learn a lot more. So the, the mental kind of mindset foundation of this was to train a really happy limbic system. Um, and that's, uh, I think I've talked about this before, so I'll, I'll review this really quickly, but the way I'd like to think of it is a sort of a learning zone. We talk a lot about, you know, people being in their comfort zone, wanting to push outside your comfort zone and that's where you grow. And that there is a lot of truth to that, but if you get too far beyond your comfort zone, you know, you kind of move past that state of thrill and excitement and into the state of terror. And the reason that that, that transition takes place is because the, the level, you know, as if you're in your comfort zone, you're very secure, there's no fear, you're totally in control and you're very comfortable. As you move to the edge of your comfort zone, a little bit of fear creeps in and the level of control that you have starts to come down a little bit. 
Uh, but at some point in there, that that just feels like excitement and thrill because you're still really confident in your ability and your skill set. But there is a little element of risk that wasn't there when you were totally in your comfort zone. And then the further out you get from your comfort zone, that risk and fear comes up at the same time as your level of control comes down. And the rate at which that's going to happen is going to depend on what your skill set is, how tired you are, how well fueled you are, all of those things. And so one of the things I really wanted to do with this was to stay with stay within what I call the learning zone. Because if you go too far out of your comfort zone, you're not in control, fear and risk take over. What happens is then you've gone from a sympathetic activation where you're excited and extra alert into a full-on sympathetic state. And that's where you're just terrified and your whole brain and your whole central nervous system really get hijacked by that fight or flight response. And when you're in fight or flight, you can't learn squat. Like it's, you're just not going to take anything in and you're going to be putting yourself at unnecessary risk. So at this point, there's not really any point for me to be pushing my skills really hard. I'm much better off if I stay within that learning zone so that every pedal stroke I'm taking, every corner I'm going through, every descent I'm on, I'm really learning and absorbing those lessons as opposed to fighting a fight or flight response. So that was one of the big things that I really wanted to establish. And by doing that, I'm increasing my confidence in my control and my ability to handle the bike, which will keep me calm. And it'll create this baseline foundational association of when I get on the mountain bike and I'm on dirt, my brain and my limbic system, which is part of your autonomic system is going to say, Hey, this is awesome. I love being on the mountain bike. It's not going to be thinking, you know, Oh boy, we better set off alarm bells because this is a really dangerous situation. That's going to threaten our survival. (laughs) So that was, that was a really big thing was, is laying that, that fa- mental foundation, mindset foundation of training my limbic system to be really happy and excited to be on the mountain bike, as opposed to seeing it as an actual threat or danger. This is, uh, that was the su- one thing really quick. That was the science behind send it right there. Bros just say like, <laughs> just send it, dude. I don't know why you're waiting up here thinking about this. Just go for it. And he just broke it down. So that was fantastic. Thanks, Amber. That was great. Uh, did you crash at all? Nope. That and is, that was part of my goal. Yep. What, what you just said, there will be a time where you will push and you will crash. Mm-hmm. And then having to come back from that, depending on how bad that crash is. Uh, right. I, I've, in my experience, it, it's the, the little crashes aren't a big deal. It's when you have that first really hard mountain bike crash mm-hmm. uh, that makes, that like knocks you down. Um, ways, which is interestingly, tough. I think those, those little crashes are almost beneficial. I, I've had them happen in criteriums where you don't really get hurt. Um, so you just get to pit and then you're back in there. Had it happen on this ride that we went on just Saturday where at the very beginning of the trail, the guy that was with us went into it fast. And I just assumed that was a tolerable pace. I tried to follow <laughs> it and really quickly, I lost my front wheel and I went down hard. Didn't hurt. So I sprung back up and was like, ah, crash is not that bad. So, I mean, that was the association that I formed right then, maybe not consciously, mm-hmm. but it was with me for the rest of that ride. And I stayed probably just a little more relaxed over some scarier stuff because the threat of crashing wasn't, uh, wasn't as severe as it was had I not right. had that small fall. That makes Wait, sense. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> no, I was just going to say at this point again, because I'm just starting Again, this is sort of like, I feel like the, the base training for the mindset that I don't want to introduce a crash in a, in, when I'm in base training phase. Like if I'm just learning the basics, I don't necessarily need to be pushing it that hard. But when we get down the road to those progressions where we're talking about where it's like, okay, making those subtle manipulations in a line to gain a couple seconds and really sessioning longer sections and sessioning those for speed as opposed to skill, absolutely, that makes sense. But right now, 
and I've had this happen too, same thing on the road bike, where it really depends on the nature of the crash, whether it's going to be something that actually emboldens you, or if it's something that's really going to set you back. And anybody who's had a bad crash will tell you the physical recovery is nothing compared to the, the mental and emotional rehabilitation of trying to get yourself back to a point of being able to accept similar risks again. And so Right now is like, I feel like this is the time where I really need to be building my confidence and laying those foundational bricks of skill and, and calm. Um, and I think even, yeah, the confidence that makes you calm ultimately makes you better at the handling because if something happens and comes up, if you're calm, you're much more likely to handle it appropriately than if you're going to react. So yeah, I, at this point, again, really early stages. Um, and there were a couple moments where I'd start to get really frustrated with myself and say like, oh, you should really be pushing it. And I just have to check myself. And usually in those moments where I started getting frustrated with myself or I started really having self-doubt, I realized it'd been a while since I'd eaten. <laughs> so <laughs> like learning to recognize those little signals is like, oh, I, I, I could probably eat something. Or, you know, it'd just be like, oh, I am getting tired. And as soon as, you know, being really aware of my fatigue level too, even within the day was, you know, toward the end of each session, I would be doing much less technical stuff than I would be in the beginning. Again, because I didn't want to be taking those risks in, this, in a fatigue state because I'm really just trying to lay down really positive associations and confidence building experiences. So when's your next mountain bike ride? Not sure yet, but I'm excited to do more. March. <laughs> <laughs> what, uh, do you know what tires you're using? No, I don't. You're, you're going to get into all this stuff. You're gonna I know. am. Well, you guys are going to make sure I do. <laughs> what, pre what pressure were you riding the tires at? Do you know that? Uh, I think. Like you just give me the squeeze PSI. test. 20 ish. Cool. Yeah, it's a, Do you know I mean, the width of them? No. About that much? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I just rode what was on there. I rung what I rung. No, that's yeah, good. I mean, 20-ish is about right for where, you know, if you don't have inserts and all that stuff, that's 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 about right, usually. So, mm -hmm. cool. I did, I did do a Google search on that, just, just so you know. <laughs> nice. Awesome. That's exciting. I'm fully so, aware of, of my lack of expertise in this area. <laughs> that's why, that's why the internet exists to make up for all of our lack of expertise, right? Ooh, yeah. And forum.trainer.com. Even if you're True. new, you can ask questions in there and people are be excellent to each other. People are super nice. Yes. Uh, yeah. There's Very no true. question that when you're brand new, you know, I mean, I've, you should look, I've asked plenty of dumb questions over the history of, of life <laughs> and uh, it's no big deal. That's, it's how a you, friendly, that's how we learn. You learn faster a, if you ask dumb questions. That's for true. sure. It's a friendly community on the internet. It's amazing. So those are I pretty know. hard to find. So, but th that one exists. So let's get straight into Brian's question. Okay. So he says, uh, hyponatremia question and caffeine question. I have a seemingly silly question, but I legitimately think it has merit. It concerns hyponatremia and I'm saying hyponatremia, by the way, um, just to make sure that that, that part's clear. Uh, he says, I live in Florida and while training outdoors, it can easily be 90 degrees Fahrenheit and 60% humidity. I've completed rides where my socks are fully saturated and toes pruned up because of all the sweat. Because of this, it isn't uncommon that I stop at a rest stop to refill my water bottle in addition to my normally planned nutrition. So my question is, if I feel I'm starting to become hyponatremic, would licking my arm, he mentions the skin, uh, would licking my arm sweat be a last ditch effort to avoid this? Does the concentration of sodium per square inch of skin uh, of skin sweat actually make practical sense because you basically have a continuous source of sodium that you can gradually and continually ingest. So let's just stop it right here. 
Sorry if you feel sick, if you're listening to this. The dogs do, right? <laughs> Your dog comes yeah, up and you're like, which yeah. makes it totally, yeah, which makes it totally <laughs> normal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally normal. Um, it's Chad, do you want to cover this one before we go in or do you want to read all of his questions? I think we, we basically have three questions here. So let's just do one question at a time. Cool. Let's this do this the first one, one. So first off, it probably should uh, describe what hyponatremia is. Mm. We haven't covered that. So hypo means low. Uh, natremia is uh, the emia's blood. Nah, is sodium. So just low blood sodium. So low blood sodium levels are the concern here. And Brian's wondering fairly, I think it's, it's it's pretty gross. But can he correct his low blood sodium levels by licking the salt that's that has been shed through sweating? It's a reasonable question, and 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 it was. Uh, something that was kind of fun to dig into until I recognized that there was basically a dearth of information on this topic. There's just nothing out there. I did find one. Now there's a website. It's the international hyperhidrosis society. So uh, hyperhidrosis is a, a dysregulation of sweating. So it's like over sweating and I'm sure it's more complex than that, but that's, that's all we need to understand to further this conversation. So Angela Ballard is a registered nurse and she is the community communications director for this International Hyperhidrosis Society, she pointed out that the sodium content in sweat is minimal. So about 99% of sweat is water. That means the remaining 1% is comprised of everything else. And that, that includes carbohydrates, some protein, some salt, or, you know, some sodium, and some urea. Uh, so so at, at best, the sodium content of sweat is going to be much less than 1%, or at least less than 1%. What, however, isn't as tightly regulated as that is the bacterial content in your sweat. And she points out that not only is it there, but it also proliferates. So, you know, it's actively Ooh. growing. It's bacteria. It's a living thing, right? Now, on top of that, you have lotion and sunscreen and whatever else you put on prior to the ride or maybe during the ride. Bugs Road grime. From the ride. Cow manure. Road um, debris. <laughs> Amber pointed something out regarding the spring classics. Oh, yeah. we used to, When you're riding the spring classics in Belgium in the... Yeah, at that time of year, you just guarantee to be covered in a sh fine sheen of manure the whole time. <laughs> oh, yeah. gross. Part so, of the experience. <laughs> yes. So already it's looking like maybe not the best solution. Um, <laughs> physiologically, I do understand. It makes sense, but I can't find a single resource out there. I couldn't find many resources, period, but I certainly couldn't find one that advises it. Um, rather, they say it's assumed that there's a strong chance you're getting enough sodium from your diet as it is. So I think hyponatremia is, uh, it's, it's not the boogeyman. It's a, it's a real threat to, to health. It's a serious one too, potentially. But I think a lot of people think they're going to come up against it. It's just part of being an endurance athlete, especially if you train in, and race in you know, hot or humid conditions. But it's, it's not as big a threat as you might think. It's pretty easy to manage your, your sodium levels. Um, a good place to start is having a sweat sodium analysis done. And these are not hard to come by these days. On top of that, it's really easy to brace for a situation like this one. I mean, yes, you can have uh, fluid replacement drinks that have a little bit of sodium in them, but I understand that a lot of people don't want, especially when your your bottles warm up over the course of the day, the idea of taking a, a mouthful of warm salt water, not particularly appealing. So they have things like salt tablets and, and salt tablets have come quite a long ways in recent years. A pH makes a, a sweat salt electrolyte capsule that's bubble wrapped or uh, what's it called? Yeah, it's a it's blister packed. So blister pack. Yeah, and I, I take that with me on all my rides that are longer rides. 
Why not? It's a couple capsules. It's these little tiny powder filled capsules that weigh nothing. I mean, mm-hmm. they, they wouldn't even register on, on a scale unless you have a very sensitive one. So why not throw a couple of those in your pack or in your pocket and just know that, you know, should it come down to it? Should I get to a point where all I want to do is drink cold, fresh water? I'm still going to get enough sodium because I'm going to pop one of these tablets. Pretty easy fix. So ounce prevention, right? And I think that's all I have on that one. So this yeah. is like um, drinking your own pee. Like, yeah, you could do it, but why don't you just bring some extra water? Uh, exactly. So if you Didn't think- Bear like, Grylls do that? <laughs> probably. Think, yeah, it's probably, yeah, it's a total Bear Grylls move. Yikes. I did the pre- precision hydration salt test and I'm 1300 milligrams per liter of, wa- of sweat. So if you think about that, um, and I think depending on the, the temperature, a hot condition like this, I'll probably be like 1.5 uh, liters per hour or two liters per hour, somewhere in there sweating, um, based on some tests I've done on my trainer inside in a hot room. Uh, so if you're doing that, think of all the water that falls off you, right? The salt's going to be in that. And then think of like the surface area of your arm. So you get 1300 milligrams per hour and only the stuff that stays on you and then the surface area of your arm. And that's not much, right? So if you're Mm going to do it, like lick your Cape Epic partner's arm at the same time. Oh, you probably get the back a lot easier. <laughs> uh, Sophia just called in. She's out. <laughs> no, no, no. I, my nutrition is going to be dialed. I do everything like, right. But for those who cramp, uh, Pete, Wait. I hope, or Chad, I hope Pete doesn't have a hairy back because that'll just make it <laughs> Producer Tucker, we need to save that bit right there where Nate just said, I do everything right. My nutrition will be dialed because if one thing goes wrong, I'm going to replay that for you, Nate. So go ahead. I dialed my nutrition. I mean, it's a dangerous statement. My dope spreadsheet. I I plan farther. I'm a triathlete and we we plan all the way and it could go wrong, but. You do a better job of nutrition than basically anybody I know. So uh, very good at it. That's real. Yeah. So, so, uh, Chad, I see the counterpoint that a lot of people have is that like, and you know, you were kind of alluding to this, but like, well, I see salt stains on my kits. So that means that there has to be something there, but that's the salt stains that we still, that we see still aren't a lot of sweat, right? Like it's not, or sorry, it's still not a lot of salt itself, or still not a lot of sodium, uh, really when you're talking about what's left in there and the salt stains on your kit, it's not a lot, right? Yeah. Regardless of how much is coming out, your body is still very good at regulating its sodium stores. Yeah. So, so you're not business idea out the window. If you're a super taster and you think you can do a self sweat test by tasting your own arm, it's probably <laughs> not going to be that accurate. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> oh <Sorry>. my gosh. <laughs> uh, let's go into his second and third questions. He says, uh, they're, regards to, they're in regards to caffeine intake. I know this subject has been covered a few times on this podcast and I've heard it discussed on several other podcasts. I didn't know any other podcasts existed by the way. Uh, but he says, <laughs> however, I have never heard my questions addressed. I know the half-life of caffeine averages to roughly five hours and the suggested intake is three to six milligrams per kilogram. My question is, what is the suggested dosing for events that last longer than five hours? If I'm competing in an Ironman with a goal of time for, or a goal time of 12 hours, how should I go about maintaining my caffeine levels for the back half of the race? Is a 25 milligram gel every 45 minutes enough to stay topped off? Or do I need to ingest another full dosage like before the start of, of the race? <clears throat> this is like the same thing that 
Um, Nate, I don't know if you remember, but back at Valley of the Sun, we were wondering kind of the same thing, like how long will this race be? And basically if I take caffeine beforehand, will that give me the sort of benefit for the whole time? Or do I need to keep taking it in? I remember us having a similar conversation. And I think I told it's you a, to take <laughs> a ton. <laughs> yeah. 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 We'll talk about sleep. that. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yes, it does. So, so Brian, this is a really good question. And if you haven't come up against this, then caffeine's not on your radar because this is a question that if caffeine intake is a concern for you, if you think you're going to play it to your advantage, you have kicked this question around. Um, short answer is that the subjectivity of the caffeine response requires experimentation. And I'm just going to come back to that again and again and again over everything I explained coming from this point forward, because that that's how it is super subjective. If we look at the typically recommended range of caffeine intake to, to benefit, you know, to derive an ergogenic or a performance enhancing benefit, it's a, it's typically laid down at three to six milligrams per kilogram of body weight. Already, that's 100% range. We're starting at three and then we're doubling it. So that should tell you right, right out of the gates that there's a big range in you know, how people respond to this. Secondly, all the things that can influence how the caffeine affects you, the source of the caffeine. You know, Is it coming from coffee? Is it coming from tea? Is it coming from gels? Is it coming from uh, pill form, et cetera? What is your gene- genetic predisposition? You know, what allele of CYP1, what allele of Adora do you express? Those are things, and there's no shortage of information on those, those very specific things. Uh, smoking affects it, your diet affects it, your liver health, pregnancy, use of oral contraceptives, your training status, uh, the withdrawal effects, something I'll expand on a sec- in a second here, the timing of the ingestion, and another thing I'm going to expand on, the time to the peak concentration where it peaks in your blood, uh, your GI response, because I, I guarantee you, Jonathan doesn't tolerate caffeine as well as Nate does intestinally. And then the dosing, <laughs> you know, if we're talking 20 to 200 milligrams per hour versus a single 600 milligram megadose, as it's referred to, that, that's going to have different effects as well. Also, and this is a big point because the, the, the literature for quite a while focused on how important a desensitization period of time was such that, you know, you, you're not going to get the ergogenic effects of caffeine unless you desensitize yourselves prior to the, you know, the event or, or whatever it is. And then come to find that, well, there's a balance there. And, 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 and the idea being simply that all the training leading up to your event, if it's done in a caffeine starved, if you will, state, but you're a caffeine habituated person, all those workouts are going to suffer. And therefore your training response is going to suffer as well. So you choose which is worse. Yeah, that's hundred percent me. I tried this once and it was definitely worse for me to lose the benefit of the caffeine on a daily basis. Um, mm-hmm. I definitely, I a hundred percent felt a huge difference when I desensitized myself ahead of a race and then, you know, really kind of slammed a giant Red Bull right before <laughs> a crit. It definitely worked, but I didn't feel like, I didn't feel that the benefit on the race day came anywhere close to the benefit that I got in terms of the daily intake. So, and I'm, I'm deeply, deeply habituated to caffeine. So the withdrawal symptoms were really rough. And, and that's it, a really important point because some people, yeah. most of us, I think are habituated to really high levels. We don't recognize it, but when you mm-hmm. go cold Turkey and you yeah. had 400 milligrams a day of caffeine on, on the, on the plate or in the cup coming off of that, that, I mean, yeah. 400 to zero in a day will have consequences. I assure you yeah. don't do oh, yeah. that. Um, there are ways to get less caffeine. I mean, just less cups of coffee or whatever, if that's yeah. your thing, but also, yes. um, they have like half calf, um, K cups or, you know, I think they even have beans that are half calf and that sort of stuff or, um, 
go caffeinated and then some decaf. I've done that where you um, go down, even like Kona coffee, when we go to Hawaii, that has way less caffeine. And by the end of that week, I come back to Reno and have a regular cup of coffee. And I'm <laughs> like, bam, I'm like zinging on one, which is crazy. Uh, do we, are we going to move on the next question? Because I have some strong. No, 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 we're not on the next one yet. Okay. Cool. So, so let me, let me, let me finish out this one. So let's do some math based on the specifics that Brian provided. So if we assume, and I, I've seen the half-life of caffeine range anywhere from five to nine hours, but we're going to pin it at five for the sake of this conversation. So let's say it has a five-hour half-life and Brian didn't provide this, but I'm going to assume he's a 70 kilogram rider. So 154, 154, four pound triathlete, which means that at six milligrams of caffeine per kilogram of body weight. So we're going to go the high end of things. That's a 420 milligram megadose to get things rolling, which means five hours into, you know, this goal 12 hour time, he still has 210 milligrams of caffeine circulating in his bloodstream. At the 10 hour point, he still has 105 milligrams circulating in his bloodstream. So if he's supplementing as he intends with 25 milligram gels every 45 minutes over 12 hours, that's an additional 400 milligrams of caffeine. End of day, that brings his daily total up to 12 milligrams of caffeine per kilogram of body weight. That is a heck of a lot of caffeine to ingest over the course of the day. So it may seem innocuous by just bumping this little caffeine intake by 25 milligrams every 45 minutes over something as arduous as an Ironman triathlon. But at the end of the day, don't plan on sleeping. And you're certainly not going to sleep that night. And I don't think you're going to sleep the next night either. Not to mention <laughs> the toll that the triathlon took on your body and the heightened sympathetic state you're going to be in for a little while. On top of it, you're teeming with residual caffeine in your bloodstream. So yet again, this is just another argument in favor of experimenting with this. And no, you're not going to go out and do a 12-hour simulation so that you can figure out how to dial your caffeine, but you know you can kind of make small steps toward calculating what's going to be necessary over something as long as 12 hours. Okay. There's more, there's more, unless what you say folds Please. in nicely. Go Chad, go. <laughs> go Chad. Okay. So, so just one study and man, unlike the licking sweat off your body, when it comes to caffeine, <laughs> there is so much information, so much literature, so much research. It is ridiculous. I don't even look at individual studies because you can't throw a rock and miss a meta-analysis of in this case, one that I picked is the 2016 review by McClellan and colleagues. They looked at 300 studies. And this was one of seven reviews I found, and it didn't look very hard. And then yesterday, I came across an umbrella review, which is a review of reviews. I mean, they looked at 21 different meta-analyses. So point being, there's a lot of information on caffeine. Uh, this particular review pointed out a couple of things that I found relevant and interesting. One is that exercise can alter our sensitivity of, of our or the sensitivity of our adenosine receptors. And that's what caffeine does is it blocks those adenosine receptors and keeps us more alert and affects our, our cognition, et cetera. Tied in with that, postponing caffeine to during or at the onset. So, you know, once you get into whatever your event is, or you do it right there standing at the starting line can mean that it has stronger effects on this, on these, the sensitivity of your adenosine receptors. So the point is in your case, Brian, maybe you save it for the bike. Maybe, you know, you struggle with the runs, so but you postpone it all the way to the run. I don't know. That's for you to figure out, but you're going to have different effects, whether you sit there in the water, warming up for the swim, or just waiting for the swim and you ingest your caffeine then, or you do it at the end of the swim, or you do it mid bike, et cetera. Yet another thing for you to experiment with. 
Secondly, this review pointed out that food ingestion slows the absorption rate also. So if you're in the fasted state, they found a strong ergogenic effect or a performance enhancing effect. But if you were in the fed state, sometimes they got no effect whatsoever. I'm sure that relates to dosage and sensitivity and all those things. But if there's food in the belly, it can affect you very differently than if you're fasted. Again, training experimentation required. And then this is a side note, just a caffeine side note, but, uh, in the course of this research, I came across a, a study by Dodd back in 1991, another study by Powers back in 1983. They used three and five milligrams per kilogram of caffeine. Um, and the other one, yeah, so, so right in that range. And they use them specifically during ramp tests, so graded exercise tests. So basically what we do every time we assess or try to estimate your new FTP. And they found that caffeine had no effect on performance, not on VO2 max, not on lactate threshold, um, I'm sure on perception, but it doesn't matter because the performance didn't change. So even if your perception is a little affected, the outcome of the, the graded exercise test is not. Just thought I'd throw that in there. That is, uh, that is my experience too. Like your maximum isn't any Same. bigger, but if you're going like sweet spot for hours, it just doesn't hurt as much and you can just go longer. So I think you, it lets you get closer to where your potential is. Um, but with the RAM test, it's pretty easy to elicit like your potential because you just fall over. Um, Chad, I think there is something too, if I remember correctly, like there is a minimum effective dose. And I remember studies saying that like you have to hit like 200 milligrams of caffeine or something. If you're just doing these small ones, there's like not a measurable effect. Yeah, um, but now I'm coming across research that points to two milligrams of caffeine has as an effective a dose in terms of ergogenic benefit as six milligrams of caffeine for people. Two so milligrams. again, and I have to believe two milligrams per kilogram of body weight. So, so even below the typical three to six range that that's out there. Well, that's, yeah, that's a hundred again for me. So that's still more though than gels and like ca caffeinated gels. I see what you're saying. Like, okay. Cause caffeinated gels might have what 50 milligrams or something like that. Very, very low amount. Uh, in, in my mind, I, I stay away from the caffeinated gels. Um, unless they're like a 150, I know SAS has one of those because they are so low. Um, I've done lots and lots of caffeine, a couple tips on it. I really like the mega dose to start and then I carry it in my pocket. And if it's a long race and I'm starting to like have issues, I can't make it. And there's many hours left, then I'll do another mega dose rather than like keeping it up the whole time. That that's worked really well for me. Watch out for, um, if you're doing caffeine pills for when the expiration date is, cause it's like Wolf of Wall Street where it gets delayed. At least that's my experience. I'm not sure if that's right, but at Valley of the Sun, I did 600 milligrams before the TT, an hour before the TT. I did not feel it until an hour after the TT. And then at 5 PM, that's when it really hit me. And I was like, Oh my goodness. Uh, yeah. there were a few years old in my bag, uh, which was not smart. And so you could, it, and it totally affects sleep. And when you do these mm -hmm. mega doses, the feeling that I get is you are sitting still you feel like death, like you're going to die, like you need to move. But if you're mm -hmm. working at like sweet spot somewhere in there, you feel amazing. And I actually get chatty. You probably see if in a long race, I'll like talk to you a bunch because I got all this caffeine and I'm like ready to go. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then at, at night, it's just, you can't sleep. But honestly, anyone after an Ironman, like you're not sleeping. It's, mm -hmm. it's really weird. You think you're so exhausted, but you have very, very poor sleep. And for an A race like me, I'm going to do a lot of caffeine. Second flip side of this is stage racing. Yeah. I thought about this a ton with Cape Epic mm. because Cape Epic stages would be a perfect place to take caffeine. But uh, I'm thinking <clears throat> I might do a couple pills for like an emergency, but it will disrupt the sleep. 
and thus make all the other stages harder, which is what I don't want. So probably in the last day I will do it. But I'm thinking is I know we have those, um, we've, we've seen where beet juice supplementation has similar effects to caffeine. And then when you stack caffeine and beet juice, you don't get an, a further improvement. So I might be doing like the 400 milligrams of like the beat it, um, the effective mm-hmm. dose of like the beat it sport stuff. Um, to try idea. to get, cause that doesn't make you sleep any worse and it might be similar. Although I've taken that stuff a lot and I get nowhere near the feeling of mm-hmm. like euphoria. And I just added 20 Watts to my FTP that I get with caffeine. Another thing to think about caffeine is that you're listening to this, pay very, very, very close attention to milligrams and grams. Cause if you mess <laughs> those up and you do these in grams, <laughs> you could literally kill yourself. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's very yeah. dangerous. I say, are important never buy uh you can buy like powdered form and this is popular like weightlifting that you mix into a drink never do that because that is way too easy to mess up the dosage for powder just stick if you're going to do either gels or um like a pill where it's usually the pills are 200 milligrams per one so if you if you're taking 20 pills or 40 pills it's pretty easy to figure out like hey this is too much should be like one or two pills to get 200 400 milligrams um, you can get them in blister packs too. Uh, one, I think no dose, they, sometimes they, they're in blister packs, sometimes they're not. The blister packs are nice because as we said, with the salt, you can put them in your pocket. So during the race, you can, you can feel it. And if I was in an Ironman, what I would probably do the swim, I actually don't want to ha- put out too much energy because it's like the, the overcome the resistance of the water. It's exponential. Like it's more than air, right? So getting that little extra percent really doesn't matter. I would probably start like the swim right before the swim, I would take my caffeine pills. So it would start to hit me outside of the, uh, outside of the swim onto my bike and then just pay really close attention to your bike power meter. Because if you're doing all this caffeine, it's easy to be like, Oh, my, my power meter's wrong, especially for an Ironman where you have to run a marathon afterwards, settle in on that. And then probably during the start of the marathon, I would do another mega dose. And then in between that, I wouldn't do any, um, caffeine. But again, as Chad said, experiment, um, what's good for me could just totally annihilate you, send you to the bathroom, be horrible for somebody else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's go to his third question. He says, additionally, I know caffeine increases your heart rate, but how does this affect heart rate zones? Do I test myself with and without caffeine and just adjust my heart rate zones accordingly? What if the caffeine pushes my race heart rate from tempo into lactate threshold? Should I then back off my effort or would this be acceptable because the increase in heart rate is due to the caffeine and not actually the effort? And somewhere right now there's somebody yelling, just just send it, I'm sure, um, instead, <laughs> <laughs> instead of worrying about such things. But uh, yeah. it's, it's a valid question. It brings up all the trickiness of heart rate for sure, right, Chad? Yeah. Yeah, it shines a really bright light on, on uh, heart rate's limitations. So this is just one, Brian, of several reasons why training solely by heart rate isn't recommended. And I'm not here to hate on heart rate, simply to point out that you can't just use heart rate and expect everything to go as intended. It's a tricky thing. Um, caffeine is one of the many things that can affect heart rate in addition to myriad other things, sleep, um, your emotions. And when, you know, it comes to race day, anxiety, anticipation, fear, those are things that are all up and heart rate's probably up right along with them. Your level of hydration can affect it. The heat on the day. And, you know, it's not too often you get to race in perfectly comfortable temperate climates. And even then when you elevate your body's heat, heart, heart rate shifts. I mean, it, it's an unpredictable thing and it, on its own is a really tough thing to work with. Uh, as you mentioned, your lactate threshold heart rate on one day can be your tempo threshold heart rate on another day, but the muscle stress and the fiber recruitment and the lactate levels, your breathing rate, your rating of perceived exertion can all remain unchanged. So two different heart rates, all the same physiological responses. 
Mm. So really simply training adaptations respond to training load. And when you limit that load based on something like solely heart rate, you can entirely alter the workout objectives and therefore the training response that comes with it. Yeah, this is a, a, I, so I, and Amber, I know you had a note on this too, that it's this really good thing to practice during training and to figure out. So then you can get even like this sort of thing, you'll start to figure out its effect on you. And that's why I didn't take it at Leadville, even though that's a really long event and a really good opportunity to, to take in and have benefits from it. But I just had no clue how my body was going to react because I don't take it enough uh, to be able to test through it. Uh, when I do take it, it's usually like the 100 milligram caffeine gels that, that Martin has. Um, but even then, whenever I take those, I get some gut distress, whereas I usually don't, um, just because I'm not used to it. So, uh, cause I don't drink ca- coffee or anything like that. So it's pretty tough for me. Yeah. It's a good thing to figure out about yourself. And I mean, especially, I mean, right now is a great time to experiment, right? Like a lot of events are being canceled. So, you know, even if you were building up to an A event, if it's been canceled and you don't have the consequences for experimenting with this and having a bad outcome are pretty low right now. And it's a great thing to know for yourself going into the future. So, um, yeah, highly recommend just experimenting a little bit with that safely, of course, but, uh, figuring out how your body responds to this stuff is really important. I, for example, it's interesting because I do have, I am homozygous for the fast metabolizing allele for caffeine, but, I'm really, for some reason, I'm just really, my sleep is really, really sensitive to it. So if I have caffeine, usually past noon, it will severely impact my sleep. Um, that's, I have a little bit more of a tolerance and buffer with that if I'm racing. So I can tolerate a little bit more caffeine if I'm racing to your point, Chad, about the effort actually potentially affecting that. But I, I do really need to be careful about that. And you know, if it's one of those races that starts at 3 p.m. And I know <laughs> I, I probably won't take, especially during a stage race, for example, I won't take caffeine because I the sleep, the benefit of the sleep is so much more valuable than the benefit of the caffeine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, let's go, let's go into the next question here, which is an exciting one. <clears throat> um, it's from Mike and he says, we know that doping with EPO was used in cycling to increase hematocrit and performance. I have a hypoxic tent that I use to prepare for mountaineering trips in six weeks. My hematocrit would increase from 44 to 50 while using this tent. What sort of performance increase would this lead to? So, um, this is, uh, so this is not going to be a walkthrough exactly on, on, on everything with EPO, but just the same, we do have a good amount of information on it and, uh, we can probably touch on, I'm sure the history of the, of the drug too, within the sport. But, yeah, yeah, but uh, for Mike, for such a short question, this is going to be a very long answer. So, <laughs> so get, get comfortable, buddy. Uh, this, this was a really fun question for me to research because not only have I read a bunch of biographies, autobiographies or biographies, just the same from different athletes who emerged from this era, who, who rode through, you know, the mid to actually really the early nineties up through 2010 and even beyond. I find these very interesting for a number of reasons, not the least of which is, you know, the, the things that writers were faced with and had to you know, deal with, you know, do I want to perpetuate my career or do I want to hang it up because I'm not willing to jump on this, this wagon. Um, so the research part of it was fun, but I also brought to the table a fair amount of uh, personal reading. I've read Charlie Wigelius's book, Peter Sagan's book, Chris Hoy's book, uh, Sean Yates book, Jonathan Vodder's book, Phil Guyman's first book. Uh, there was a book by Dan Coyle called Lance Armstrong's War, really informative, really good book, by the way, the guy's an excellent writer. I'm about to read Christophe Basson's book. I can't believe I haven't gotten to that sooner. And I'm in the midst of George Hincapie's book. And inside of George's book, he talks about, and this, this kind of relates to a point I want to touch on 
<clears throat> just just a little bit later, uh, and I quote, sometimes I mix testosterone or growth hormone twice a week with his EPO. And he also pointed out that Lance had heard, because Lance did heavy research trying to figure out, you know, how his competitors might be doping. Lance had heard rumors of synthetic hemoglobin and use of multiple blood bags. So my point here simply is that I'm not sure it was ever just EPO. And having dug into the science on the benefits of EPO, I think even more so, I'm not sure EPO had nearly the impact people think it did. I base a lot of this on, well, I base a lot of it on the, on the research that I dug into, but there's also a book titled Bad Blood written by Jeremy Whittle. And yeah, he's talking about recombinant human EPO. So this is a, you know, a synthetic form of EPO, but I didn't come across anything that seemed to indicate that this was any less effective than, than naturally produced you know, by the kidneys EPO. And then throughout this book, a number of athletes said so, that they estimated 20% improvement in their performance simply due to EPO. Obviously, that's up for a whole lot of debate, and even the placebo effect certainly enters into it, but that seemed to be the upper limit for improvement. Frankie Andreu is quoted as saying, or not quoted, but I'm paraphrasing, he thought it improved his performance at the tour by about, again, 20%. And the research consensus, and I use that term in the loosest sense, puts it around a 6 to 7% increase in VO2 max. But an increase in VO2 max does not necessarily translate directly to that same increase in performance. Might not translate to any, might translate to more. So before I go any further, let me just describe a couple key terms. So what's hematocrit and what's hemoglobin? So hematocrit is just the measure of your red blood cell mass. If you see the term pack cell volume, it's the same thing. So we're just looking at how many red blood cells as a percentage of your blood are floating around in your bloodstream right now. Uh, so, so, you know, an endurance athlete probably going to be somewhere in the forties and they can elevate that through training or altitude exposure to maybe 45, push it up to 50 as is pointed out by my care. And then, you know, at the end of a tour fatigue can knock it back down to, you know, low forties. So it is subject to a number of things. Hemoglobin is the component of blood. It's the protein in blood that actually uh, attaches to the oxygen. So it affects, it is basically representative of your oxygen carrying capacity within your blood. So two very important terms. So the question is why use EPO? Uh, basically, we're looking to increase the blood's oxygen carrying capacity. And what does that do? But it increases our aerobic work capacity. And for an endurance athlete, aerobic work capacity is everything. It's also the easiest physiological parameter to improve. I mean, you literally can do nothing. You can just go live at altitude and your, and your hematocrit will over time come up and obviously you can dope. Mm-hmm. So pretty easy to affect, but high, high hematocrit doesn't necessarily promise high performance. Right. This is, um, this is actually kind of interesting. So oftentimes smokers are observed to have very high hematocrits, for example, and that's as a result of a good deal of tissue hypoxia that leads to an increase in the endogenous production of natural EPO. Uh, so, you know, just because you have a high, you know, and, and smoking, while it might provide a really high hematocrit, isn't, recommended obviously for performance it's not going to enhance your performance so just because you have a high hematocrit it's not telling the whole story necessarily my dad is 76 and his hematocrit's 49 mm-hmm. and mine is like 37 39 and i can drop him so hard on a bike <laughs> exactly <laughs> exactly so <laughs> as, as amber points out it's not the end all be all yeah so let, let, let me continue with the why a little bit so we just talked about blood parameters let's talk about the non-hematological adaptations too so first off you can get uh, an increase in mitochondrial gene expression and what what do more mitochondria mean but again another bump in your aerobic capacity you can also see an enhancement in your muscles 
buffering capacity. So, so more of these red blood cells floating around in the bloodstream can suck up more hydrogen ions, more lactate, more of the byproducts of aerobic and anaerobic metabolism. So just by having more of these red blood cells, you actually improve your buffering capacity. So, you know, no more need for sodium bicarbonate. Just get a bigger uh, hematocrit. You can also see mood improvements and higher cognitive functioning. So this is attributed to the cerebral blood flow and increased brain oxygenation. And they, they noted, or it's been noted that athletes handle these higher training and racing, racing volumes because they're in a better psychological state. They have a greater level of self-esteem and something that I saw termed as a, a higher euphoric effect on self-perfection. I'm sorry, not perfection, self-perception. So the point being, they feel good. They feel good about themselves. They feel confident. They feel like, you know, whatever task they're going to undertake is something that they can successfully complete. It's not, it's not rocket science. It's science. We can all relate to that. There's also an increased satellite cell gene expression. Satellite cells are basically the little hangers on on your muscle cells that further or actually allow you to repair that muscle. So just think faster recovery, faster muscle repair. And then the placebo effect is always relevant and, and it proved to be pretty relevant here too. So Chad, can, lit, before you go sure. to the next, look, I'm going to, I want to say one thing about the, like the doping error back when Lance was there is this gets misunderstood a bunch is that at this time they were testing hematocrit, but you couldn't be over, you couldn't be 51. So you could be 50.9 for hematocrit. And, uh, some people like, well, I think Tyler Hamilton, he was naturally 49. So when he took EPO, he had to just a teeny bit, right? He's got a little performance where Lance he was like, thir I think he was 37. So when he took it, he got a huge benefit from that. But he was already on that high level elite world class <clears throat> playing field compared to everyone else. But because with the drugs that are available, they benefited his physiology better than other people. Um, yeah, that's a, a, that's a really solid. Yeah. It's a very solid point. I was going to get to that. It, it, I wasn't going to touch on that exactly, but I was going to point out that the UCI at one point did set a limit of hematocrit at 50%, which... Yeah. It's really hard to pin a number on that because there is a certain subjectivity to it as you've, as you've demonstrated. You're low yeah. hematocrit, your, your dad's high hematocrit, you're not exactly the same athlete. The, uh, Charlie Wigelius pointed this out early on in that he had a very high hematocrit. So once they imposed this limitation, once the UCI said anything above 50 flags you and you're out, you can't compete, his Swannies or, or his, uh, I think his Swannies or uh, team doctor actually had to dilute his blood. With, with a plasma infusion. I mean, they had to knock his, because if he'd go to altitude or do any training that bumped up his hematocrit, they actually had to bring it back down so that he could race. I mean, he lived a life in basically a competitive career in terror of being deemed a doper, having never done anything wrong, if you, know, if you, if you believe his story. And this is the, the reason for the biological passport system is they look at your hematocrit over time. And if I were to suddenly jump up to like, I'm like at 37, then I'm at like 50 right before a race. Even if they couldn't detect other things in my blood, they'd be like, nope, you're, you're, you're doping. And another thing, they, they put that, um, that limit in because if your blood gets too thick, I think it's stroke and heart attack. And you hear yeah. stories of people in the tour getting up in the middle of the night and like doing Ride jumping jacks. So they did yeah. not die. Uh, while they slept because their blood would get so thick and their low heart rate. It gets, it gets so viscous. They would actually hop on the trainer in the middle of the night and then go back to bed, which again, I mean, how bad do you it, want it's it? just true. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> some dangerous business, not to mention the, the other side effects of, uh, of various forms of blood doping and, and included in that is EPO. So dangerous stuff. And compromise Ready integrity. I don't know. Just saying. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. Let's not even let's not even go there. Let's not even go there. That's a that's a super tough discussion. Okay. So let's let's touch on the research. Let me touch on the research literature a little bit. And again, I want to reiterate, we're talking about recombinant human EPO, not EPO that's naturally produced by the kidneys. But again, I, I haven't I didn't come across anything that said that the potency or their efficacy was any different. Uh, also, <laughs> advice to junior researchers such as myself, because I'm not a researcher, right? I'm a coach who does research and I try to make heads or tails of the information I read, but I, I don't put together studies. I don't recruit cohorts. I don't submit these things for peer review. I'm not a researcher. I just try to make sense of what I read. In the process of doing this, I've learned a few things, one of which is uh, the power of meta-analyses. So I did a lot of reading on this topic and had all this interesting information. And I'm still going to share it because it's still interesting, but it doesn't support the point that I was trying to support. Rather, if I had skipped to the meta-analysis that I later found and started there and worked backward, probably would have saved myself quite a lot of time. <laughs> so always look for the most current meta-analyses and uh, uh, systematic reviews that you can get your hands on. So let's talk about four different studies. First of which is Calbert, 2007. Um, it was, it regarded submaximal performance increases more than VO2 max. And what they showed that the VO2 max increases with the EPO supplementation over a four week and then, or actually over a, an 11 week time course, they looked at four weeks and they had a 12% bump in VO2 max. At 11 weeks, that had declined slightly to 11.6, but they got, you know, a substantial bump in VO2 max. Their time to exhaustion at 80% of their VO2 max, however, jumped way up. It went up to 54% Whoa. and then it was still roughly at that 54% a little while later. So we're talking an enormous bump in submaximal effort level, which is, you know, what you're going to ride a grand tour at. You're not going to spend a heck of a lot of time over VO2 max when you're riding for six or seven hours a day. And, that, and that's the point is that few competitions are performed at VO2 max. So it's important to see the performance improvements over the specific improvements like VO2 max. Hmm. Then in 2000, Berkeland and colleagues uh, looked at the effect of recombinant EPO on cycling performance. And, and basically they took their subjects who came in uh, with an average of 43 hematocrit and they elevated it to on average about 51 over 30 days. A couple of people had to duck out of the study early because they hit 50% early on. And of course, as Nate pointed out, that's dangerous territory. Uh, their VO2 max and their time to exhaustion in a graded exercise test, so a ramp test, remained elevated for up to three weeks post EPO administration. So the point here is that they get three weeks of benefit out of this. And what's more important is that this gives them two weeks of performance enhancement outside of the one week glow time, which is typically associated with EPO. And that glow time is, you know, basically where you're going to test, test positive for it, but they found a workaround for that in the, in the form of microdosing. So they didn't even really have a glow time and they could, either way, my, my understanding of it is that, that they found ways to continuously dope with EPO regardless of this so-called glow time. Um, Huberger in 2017 took 48 participants over eight weeks and they stratified them by age. So the 1834 age group, the 3550 age group, they double blinded it. They randomized it. They placebo controlled it. They did everything you ought to do. And the hemoglobin concentration and the lab power, their, their maximum power in the lab and their VO2 max measured in the lab were higher in the EPO group indeed. But then they put them out on a race course up Mont Ventoux and the submaximal power and the VO2 were the same in the groups. So this didn't have any measurable benefit on their submaximal power, didn't change their VO2 max. These people all raced reasonably the same. So point here is that 
significant lab findings didn't translate to significant performance improvements in the field on the race course. That's really and interesting. And then yeah, th this one, Palace Grow, I was all about, I was very excited to share all sorts of details on this. It was titled Review of Effects of EPO Abuse on Performance. Um, but the meta-analysis I found later pointed out that they had a lack of systematic approach. Their search strategies were questionable. They weren't using up-to-date measurement tools. So basically had to discard all the fun things I learned. <laughs> but the one thing I did take away from it, and this is a bit of encouragement for people who have a low VO2 max, was a man by the name of Derek Clayton. He had the world record in the marathon in 67 and 69. His VO2 max was 69, which is not exceptional. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's okay. It's pretty good really for, for a normal athlete, but for a world record holder, it's, it's not exceptional by any stretch of the imagination, but Derek could work at 90 to 92% of his VO2 max. And what that translates to for, for us in FTP terms is somewhere in the ballpark of 108%. And whether it's 106 or 110, we're talking well above VO2 max, yet he could sustain blood lactate levels at 2.5 millimoles, which for us is going to be somewhere around 80%, 85% of threshold. But he could say well above threshold and just put away that lactate, or he wasn't producing a lot of that lactate. It doesn't matter. The point is he had a low VO2 max, but he had a crazy high capability for performance as a runner. That's like That's my left really leg only when I'm sleeping. <laughs> it's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's amazing. That's wow. Yep. I can't believe that. Okay. So all of this led me to, or it, it led me to, I wish I'd started with a vin, the uh, systematic review and analysis of the effect of EPO on athletic performance by Vintrin and colleagues in 2019. All these studies are linked, linked, sorry. And, and this, uh, they looked at the treatment period. So there was immediate term, short term, intermediate term, long term. They looked at the dosage level, low, medium, or high. Started with 3,400 articles, whittled it down, uh, removed 548 duplicates. There were 86 left. They whittled that down to 10 that met the inclusion or exclusion criteria. So moving forward with those 10 studies, they looked at the rating for perceived exertion scale, time to exhaustion, training load, total work, power output max, sub-maximal power output, month on two race times, blood parameters like hematocrit and hemoglobin concentration, pulmonary measures like ventilation, VO2 max, sub-maximal VO2. And like I said, they further stratified this by treatment periods and dosage. So TLDR, very thorough. Again, where I should have started and what they determined what and, and I quote, there does not appear to be a dose-dependent relationship between EPO and athletic performance, and the specific dosage threshold for the ergogenic effects remains unclear. So, so looking at all these studies, they, they can't even point to EPO as being responsible for the improvements in performance. They also stated that low to moderate quality evidence suggests that EPO may, emphasis on may, be more beneficial than placebo in enhancing blood and pulmonary measures maximal power output and time to exhaustion. And we're talking maximal power outputs. Let me hit on that again. These improvements are almost exclusively seen during maximal exercise intensities, hardly something that applies to grand tour riding. Hmm. Point being, how much was EPO actually doing for these athletes? Or was it some other part of the cocktail of, of performance enhancing drugs that they were utilizing? Doesn't it just say though that the dose, they're not sure how big of a dose it was? Are they saying that it was it didn't they related it to the dosages. So, so regardless, they, I mean, when they tied it to dosages and, and uh, length of treatment periods, they still at best found low to moderate quality evidence that said it's slightly better than placebo. Hmm. Mm. That's crazy to me. So my, so, so my question for Mike, and just out, not that he can answer this, is that 
how and who is interpreting your findings? Because hematocrit, as we pointed out, is, is, a, is a tricky thing. And, and just a couple examples of the possibility for misinterpretation are you can be dehydrated, which means your plasma volume is down, which means your relative blood uh, pack cell volume or your, your uh, blood, red blood cell count is up higher hematocrit, even though it's mm-hmm. the same amount of red blood cells. You do some heat training or heat acclimation and your plasma volume goes up and it's going to happen you know, relatively quickly. Now you've got a lower hematocrit. So your hematocrit's down, but the amount of red blood cells in your bloodstream is just the same. Uh, Chad, right. I feel like that final systematic review and meta-analysis is like funded by like the Association <laughs> of Pops Riders from the past or something. Yeah, <laughs> probably. <laughs> you know, like, I wonder, I wonder, just because it, it seems it's, so crazy to call it's super interesting. a question. Because it, yeah, it, I, once I agree. again, a, a lot of it seems like, you know, uh, I could totally be guilty of logic leaps instead of actually relying upon the science, right? So... Yeah. yeah, but I, as I as I work my way through George Hincapie's book, he's pointing out that you know over time he gradually weaned himself off PEDs and was still performing at a very high level. I mean, one Kern Russell Colonel Kerna. I mean, he's he's done some things that he shouldn't be able to do if the drugs really had the impact that they all believed they did. That's the another part though is that when you take these drugs, your physiology is impacted forever, and the ability, the volume, and the and the wattage that you do, uh, your body changes. Mm-hmm. Like you, you get benefits yeah. for, for a very long, like for the rest yeah. of your life. Yeah, no, we have come across those studies. So uh, agreed. It's, it's. Well, and even from like a work perspective, right? If you're, if your body has been able to train at a higher level of output for a certain period of time, that does change your body in and of itself right there. Um, like the adaptations that we're talking about aren't just entirely temporary and your body goes back to whatever it was once before, but you're changing your body with training. Like that happens. So, Mm -hmm. um, uh, we've talked about like dormant nuclei and plenty of other effects that you get from a lot of this. And that's definitely not, uh, when you do enable yourself to train with more, I mean, a lot of it, high elevation people could be saying the same about low elevation people because they can train and and do a whole lot more when they have, yeah, exactly. More oxygen. Right. So, Mm -hmm. um, it's a, it's definitely something to consider for sure that it's not just like you take it. And like you said, Chad, that three week period it's, and then after that you're back to square one. This and what is, if it just furthers your ability to recover? I mean, that alone could be all that it takes, mm-hmm. especially over the course of a three week grand tour. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And touching back on what Chad said about, you know, the interpretation of the hematocrit findings. Um, one thing that I did have some experience with was, uh, Sometimes, so the, the hematocrit being based on cell mass and not the number of cells is, is interesting because there's um, a condition called ma- macrocytic anemia, which can present as a good hematocrit, but actually what happens with this is the cells are larger. So the number of cells might not actually be that high, but the volume that the cells are occupying is a lot. So it looks like you have a high red blood cell count when actually, because the hematocrit is measuring as a higher percentage of your blood plasma volume being red blood cells, but it's really just the volume of the cells being larger. And that actually means that you might not have a great oxygen carrying capacity. Um, And that condition can be related to vitamin uh, vitamin B deficiency. And in some cases that's dietary, but there are some genetic conditions that might predispose you to not being able to absorb vitamin B very well. Um, so that's something to keep in mind. Uh, so just because you have a high hematocrit, it might not necessarily mean it's not necessarily the same thing as a red blood cell count, or it might not correlate necessarily with oxygen carrying capacity. Yeah. Uh, you make a really good point too, in the, in the next spot there, Amber, and the fact that mm-hmm. like a lot of the time we look at doping and we're just like, like, uh, we feel like it's, uh, the athletes that have doped in particular with EPO. It's like, man, that's super low hanging fruit for me as well. 
but mm-hmm. we forget the context for those athletes, right? Like right. they're probably doing, they've probably maxed things out. Right. At, at that level, when you're talking about the grand tour level, especially those athletes have mostly maxed out other adaptations that we've talked about, you know, in a whole lot across a lot of different um, topics, but, but other adaptations like mitochondrial adaptations, vascularization, there's a whole host of other adaptations that are really beneficial and contribute to that. And when those athletes at that grand tour level have maxed all of those other things out, then you add, you know, an increase percentage or two in hematocrit, it makes a real difference because those kinds of gains at that level make a huge difference. Whereas if you're just starting out in the sport it's not necessarily going to have that much of an impact for you if you haven't maxed out all of those other adaptations and you can max out all of those other adaptations just by honest training. So it depends <laughs> on what you're taking. Something to keep in mind. Yes. If you're that's probably a testosterone true. and growth hormone. You're going to recover and it's going to be, if you're very beginning, it's going to be crazy. Don't do that. All Don't your do TRT that. People, <laughs> you're doping. If you're racing, it's so not anyway. nearly as fulfilling guys. Um, the other thing I just want to mention here is specific to the question regarding the altitude tent. So we're looking just at the change in hematocrit based on having slept in this altitude tent, right? The other thing to consider in terms of performance outcomes with this is what sleeping in an altitude tent is going to do to your recovery. Mm -hmm. So whatever potential performance increase you might get from an increase in hematocrit, which based on what Chad said, sounds pretty questionable, um, (laughs) it might be completely canceled out or offset by the fact that you're not going to recover as well when you're sleeping at altitude, um, at night, because it's going to compromise the quality of your sleep. And it's certainly going to compromise your ability to recover between training sessions, especially if you're training every day. Mm-hmm. Doesn't that, uh, don't you catch up to that though? Once you go into your hematocrit levels out. Mm, that I don't know, to be honest, I don't know. I don't either. Yeah. yeah. A- a- Amber, you've, you've, you actually have a tent an altitude tent, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've used one. And and it's not comfortable to sleep in, I assume. It's mine when I was sleeping in it was not actually too bad because it the one that I got was significantly larger, but I will say it made at least from a qualitative perspective. So I didn't I didn't really take the time to to design a well <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I didn't have a well thought out study or well designed experiment here, but just in terms of self experimentation and qualitative perception, um it wrecked me. It wrecked mm-hmm. me in terms of my recovery. It really diminished the quality of my training, um, how much I was able to recover between sessions. And I did not notice a difference in performance. Um, was there, that, was there any me. growing level of anxiety knowing that you had to get in that tent every night? Uh, actually, no. Um, hmm. It was pretty spacious. Like our whole bed fit in it. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, there was no, there's no, there's no stress around it, but it certainly... Yeah, I don't know. My legs just felt trashed the whole time mm. that I, I I slept in it, and so I I gave up on that pretty quickly. Actually, <laughs> what what elevation was it set to? How long did you do it? And what were your husband's um, thoughts? He was real excited about it because he's like, "Oh, this is great! I'm gonna get all these benefits from just like laying here. This is awesome." Um, <laughs> but, uh, there was a protocol that we use, and I don't remember exactly, but I did I did do like a a you know, every couple nights increasing the simulated altitude. So it wasn't just like, oh, we're going to just slam it at 14,000 feet. And that was really important. And probably my recovery would have been a lot worse had I just gone for it off the bat. Um, I think it was something like two, two to 5,000 feet every couple days 
we would bump it up depending. Um, but it was, yeah, I just, I, I really, I never saw much benefit to it personally. Mm. And that's just, that's my own personal experimentation with it. And maybe there was some other protocol I could have tried, but yeah, it, it felt like for? a whole lot of hassle for not, um, I had it. So I tried it, especially like leading into races where I might be at elevation, for example. But again, like after a few, I want to say three or four times going through that protocol, I just really, I felt like the benefit, the benefit of getting good recovery and good sleep far outweighed any, anything that I was really getting out of the experience. So, yeah. Yeah. It's like a kind of a theme so far with this podcast is when in all of these efforts that you do. <clears throat> try to make sure you're not robbing Peter to pay Paul sort of a thing, right? In the sense that like, <laughs> yeah. you know, you, you make strides in one other one way, but it leaves an equal or greater deficit possibly in, on the other side. <clears throat> mm -hmm. So forgive me. Uh, okay, uh, let's go into Jeff's question. Then we'll do some live questions. Jeff says, I have a question about TSS. I'm 51 years old and have been using Trainer Road for about three years. Thanks, Jeff. We appreciate it. Happy to have you with us. He says, I hear you all talk about getting 800 TSS a week or even 500, and I can't even imagine being able to do that. Try as I may, I can't crack my current level of work. The most I've done is in the 350 to 400 range, and quite frankly, it felt awful during that time. I regularly felt like I was getting sick. I realize other life stressors play into this, and I do have a family and a fairly demanding job. Am I destined to have such low TSS forever? My goals are simply to maximize my potential, and I'm so grateful I've discovered Trainer Road. Your product, including the podcast, have motivated, motivated me to get back on the bike after years away. He says, I'm trying to make up for lost time. Uh, so thanks for doing what you do, and I would appreciate any light you can shed on this. Cheers from Jeff. <clears throat> so this is, uh, man, we're, we're, we're probably guilty of talking about high FTPs more often than low FTPs and, and just as high TSS weeks versus low TSS weeks, that sort of a thing. Um, just like many times, you know, when you talk about, you know, it, we always tend to talk about the max. If you're talking about running, you tend to talk about like the highest speeds, you know what I mean? Like, that's just kind of what we do. But I certainly, um, am aware of the fact that, that we may be like, uh, normalizing higher TSS than normal, um, uh, than what is actually normal. So, um, if you can only fit in 350 to 400, that does not mean that that's bad. It does it's not bad if you can't do an 800 TSS week, right, Chad? Yeah. The first question I'd ask you, Jeff, because you didn't mention it is, are you improving? Is that 350 to 400 TSS still yielding improvement? Because if it is, you're, you're at least on the right track. Uh, this brings me to something we've touched on in the past is a term called minimal effective dose. So the, the goal, and, and this is basically how MED transfers to, or translates to what we do, is to train just enough to elicit consistent and measurable improvement without affecting the ability to continue doing so. So we're looking for steady and continuous improvement. So if you're improving, then the dose is at least sufficient. And then at some point, yes, the benefits are going to plateau. You can't just continue to stay at 350 to 400 TSS and expect things to continue improving. At that time, some change is necessary. It might mean that you need uh, a bit of recovery. Maybe you need uh, a bit more, more training time. You need to up that seven hours a week to eight hours a week. Maybe you need just a change in the stimulus. Maybe you need a departure from some of these life stressors you talk about. Maybe it's better sleep or nutrition that can further the, the training load or allow you to do more training. Maybe you just need to shift and start targeting your, your weaknesses or your limiters. So... Mm -hmm. <clears throat> routinely or occasional 
occasionally surpassing that minimal effective dose, it, the, the, probably the most crucial downside of it is that you emerge under-recovered for the next hard day. And we've, we've, we talked about this earlier. We talk about it all the time because it happens a lot. In doing so, you know, just, just pushing a little extra on that day and just continuing to exceed that minimal effective dose, your sleep can suffer, your mood can suffer, and what goes with that but your motivation. Your health can suffer, and of course, your fitness is either going to stall or probably decline. So this concept of minimal effective dose is the very rationale behind just because you can doesn't mean you should. So the... the for, for example, you can make a small increase in the training stimulus. You can take a workout and you're feeling good that day, so you go above and beyond. A lot of the times that pans out, but a lot of the times that small increase in training stimulus can yield a large increase in the likelihood that you're not going to have a very good next important workout. Mm-hmm. It could maybe just mean that you skip your endurance ride the next day because you're a little, little cooked. And then you know your consistency tanks, maybe a little, maybe a lot. Occasionally, this isn't a big deal, but when this is the trend, this is basically setting the, the groundwork or, or helping you establish bad habits. So my advice to you and to everyone is to try to see the bigger picture. Try to recognize that patience with slow but steady progress is always rewarded. I mean, could you progress faster? Yes, that's always a question, but is it worth the risk? And with someone who's 51 years of age versus 21 years of age, with someone who has a family and as you've stated, a fairly demanding job, maybe pushing that, that limit is, is, is not the best way to go. If you're seeing improvement now, stay the course. Yeah, I think that like living at the minimal or kind of like staying at the minimum effective dose is actually a really good spot to be for a person with any sort of uncertainty in their life. Because then you don't find yourself getting into spots where any push from those other life stressors, forgive me for bumping the mic there, but any push will effectively, you know, push you into a hole. Whereas otherwise, if any push happens, it will push you into being a bit more over, you know, overstressed, so to speak, but then that that's it. And you can just drop it back down. That said, um, you know, it's, I know that Jeff wants to make up for lost time. And also Nate, I know, you know, We've, we've joked around that you're a maximalist, not a minimalist. So, um, you know, you're always looking for ways to optimize and to get the most out of it. So I'm kind of interested to hear what you would say. Uh, am I the only one that whose memory is different than reality? Right? <laughs> yeah, totally. You think like, I did high volume and I nailed all the workouts and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Look back at it. So we can all do this. Go to your career page and there's a little TSS graph in the bottom. And then look at like, especially if it's indoor, because outdoor you can rack a whole bunch of TSS and it's a little different effective than doing like a bunch of uh, trainer workouts or outside trainer workouts, those count too. Um, and I can look at it and I do two weeks over 600 TSS and there is a significant drop off right after that every <laughs> single time for the history if I've ever done it ever, which is tells me when I, and I do plan builder and I'm like, oh, I'm going to add all these extra rides right? Like you start doing repeated events. and I'm going to do this big ride on the weekend. That's going to be 200 TSS and that's going to put me at 800 and I'm going to peak at a thousand because Key can do a thousand. So I should be able to do a thousand. And, and then you, uh, <laughs> you end up worse than you, you should be, right? Because we always want to, well, not everyone, but you hear about other people training a lot and you always hear too, pros do this a lot, especially pro triathletes. When they tell you in like their magazine article about what they do, they pick their biggest week, like their training camp. <laughs> Just with Alex Wild, he's like, yeah, I just did a 30-hour week, right? That's not his normal week. It's 30 hours. Uh, and he, he said, too, it wasn't his normal week. But I just, we can get stuck on that. We're like, wow, pros are doing that. Mm-hmm. To Matt Fitzgerald and which, I forget which book it was. I think Endurance Diet. But he said, so far, we haven't found anything genetically 
that makes pros recover better than the normal person. Supposedly, we're on the same level playing field. And it's just with us normal people, it's our diet, it's our recovery system, it's our stress in our life, it's our normal jobs. Um, all of those sort of things are keeping us from doing this training volume. Although we won't get as fast as them with a much training volume, it's those sorts of things. And we have to just be aware of all of those things inside of life. And mm -hmm. if you have, it's kind of like, I think of it as like, you're walking next to the edge of the cliff and someone pushes you and you're gonna fall off. Or if you're like five steps back, you can still like <laughs> see over the cliff, but if someone pushes you, you yeah. can kind of like walk back a little bit and you're not going to die. Yeah. Uh, where so many of us, we want to just be right on that edge all the time and you end up being slower. This is That's a perfect really pitch. Topic. Yeah, this is a perfect pitch for Sonia Looney's uh, Successful Athletes Podcast because we talk about managing that whole thing and how she had to be like, ooh, I got to change that. I'm too close to the edge effectively, you know, with like uh, and the whole learning process that she had going through pregnancy and then postpartum and everything else. Amber, you have something really uh, good written down here that just because you can't doesn't mean you should. This is like such a good example of using that saying. Like, yeah, well, totally. Chad mentioned this for sure. And then the other thing is just because you can't now doesn't mean you won't ever be able to. And I, I do want to note one thing here that with TSS, as your fitness goes up and you increase your FTP, what is a 400 or 300 TSS week for you at, let's say an FTP of 180 Watts versus an FTP of 210 Watts, your capacity to do work can still increase even if the TSS per week is staying the same. So just keep that in mind. It doesn't mean that you're not progressing. It doesn't mean that you're not increasing your capacity and your ability to do work. Um, it's just, it's, it's one metric, right? And keep in mind how that metric is calculated because it's, it, it is sort of normalizing to whatever it is that your current fitness level is. And so you might be making huge gains in your FTP and your fitness. And so I would just kind of reflect back on what Chad said initially is, are you improving? That's, that's it. That's probably the most important question. And the, the big one that doesn't get talked about enough is you do four 10 minute threshold intervals with five minutes rest in between. Then you do another workout with a longer warm recovery and you do one 40 minute interval at threshold. That is the same TSS. And I think everyone listening knows that the, if you can do the one by 40 and you just, and you struggle on the, on the four by 10, if you can build up to that one by 40, you are a faster athlete. No question about it. I think all of us would love to be able to just nail our FTP for 40 minutes and not destroy us for many years. Like that would be <laughs> so good. Um, yeah. So that just, again, that's like TSS doesn't take that into account. Right. Even a smaller example of that is like a shorter rest in between intervals, right? Where it's like last mm -hmm. week you did five minute rest, this week you did three minute rest. If you can accomplish that, you have, you are improving as an athlete. Your performance will be better. Yep. Yeah, totally. I think it's really easy to to you know see somebody say something like you know we mentioned a six hundred and eight hundred TSS week where you hear a professional athlete in an interview talk about their training load and you kind of get this image of where you are versus where they are. <laughs> and it just seems like this impossible gap to close, right? But um, an analogy I like to use is in a race, let's say a road race or a crit, you can find yourself kind of, you can, you can end up getting sort of swamped and, and pushed back to the very end of the field. And maybe there's an acceleration and then you see the front end of the field going through two corners ahead of you. And it feels like you are just on a different planet and there's no way that you're ever going to be able to find your way back to the front. Well, if you just focus on passing two handlebars at a time, you might just do that a couple times. And then the way that the dynamic of the field is, you might find yourself at the front again, less than a couple minutes later. You just, mm -hmm. progress isn't always linear. And I think that it's really important 
not to focus on the distance between where you are now and where you want to be, but to focus on what is the next step that I can take? You know, think of it as, you know, meeting yourself where you are, taking it one step at a time and think of progress more as a process like water carving stone than, you know, trying to jump across a Grand Canyon. (laughs) I I do want to take a quick moment to talk about, forgive me, reaching your genetic potential because I've hit points where like I've done like, I'm doing like, uh, really good on my training, n- hitting my marks, everything else. <clears throat> I'm discounting the impact of other life stressors. And then suddenly I have a bad workout. And I'm like, that's it. Genetic potential hit. Like I, sur- I, you know, like it's done. And I think there's a temptation for a lot of us to assume, <clears throat> forgive me, goodness gracious. Um, the, the, yeah, <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> hope it's just allergies. Um, but to assume that we have hit our genetic potential where I actually, this is a, a misuse of the word, but I call uh, of the word, but I call it like logistical potential. Like there's only so many places I can go and things I can do in my life. And that is a limit mu- that hits me much earlier than me reaching my genetic potential. I'd even argue that most pro athletes probably aren't able to reach their genetic potential just because you know, a pro also doesn't have a perfectly simplified life where they can just do that. And I think a good example of this is you see Olympic athletes that are able to compete at the Olympics one, two, even three times, and, and they improve across that time span. Uh, when they set the world record that first time at their Olympics, you'd swear that this is the peak of human potential and genetic potential, be it that same athlete is able to improve. So like, uh, you know, sure, like, while you may bump up against some sort of limit and it may feel like you can't do any more rather than blame genetics. Many of the times I, I, because that also be super discouraging to me to just say like, Oh, this is as fast as I could ever go. I can't get any better. Instead. I look at it like, okay, I have realistic parameters that are inserted in my life. Um, maybe there are things I can do to shift those and I can improve things that way. Or maybe I can get like what Nate said, probably the most low hanging fruit. Maybe I can just be more consistent. Maybe I can actually hit all my workouts, like, you know, instead of skipping them, you don't have to do more necessarily. You just have to do the work that's prescribed that you know that you can budget the time for, right? If, if all of us were just more consistent with our training, we would all see probably a much bigger benefit than that, you know, the arrow wheel set that we want to get the skin suit, the taking the, the specific mix of supplements, whatever it is. If we're just more consistent with hitting our marks, then we're probably going to see a bigger benefit. Um, and it's low hanging fruit for most of us. So plus one for consistency. That's it. Uh, I mean, it's even something that we've always talked about, Nate, like kind of like uh, a feature, right? Because we feel like it's such a key thing that like, how do we best highlight consistency even within people's training? And normally though, the, the reason we we've debated this is that we don't want to encourage people to go too much and Mm -hmm. then not take the rest. Like okay, I'm going to be 800 consistent and that is too much for me. (laughs) And we need to be able to identify when it's too much and have like a, like the, we kind of talk about two clicks down from the edge or two steps or Mm -hmm. two clicks down or two steps away from where, uh, where you could be for, uh, training and then just keep that all the time, which should do that. Yeah. The paradox of inconsistency lending itself to consistency, right? So it might be the case that you need to take a day or two off and okay, yes. so you're not consistent in those two days, but by taking those two days off, now you can be consistent over a span of three months, six months. Um, mm-hmm. So it's a little, it's a little bit of an oxymoron, a little bit of a paradox, but um, that is certainly something that we don't want to unintentionally encourage people to do: is to not take time off when they need to, when we know it would be beneficial to their consistency in the long run. 
this is like that Strava local legend thing. Like I, I've, I've like locally, I've been doing this climb on, I've been doing all outside workouts, um, and trying to go through the whole process of doing all of my workouts outside. And I'm doing that Leadville 100,000 foot challenge thing. So, which this weekend, hopefully I can finish it. And then I get a really expensive belt buckle that I paid way too much for, but just the same. Um, but, uh, I, I, I'm somehow not the local legend on this climb, even though I've been doing interval repeats on it nonstop. Like, <laughs> and I thought about this the other day that I was like, man, you could really push yourself into a spot of like overtraining by going for this because once you get on top and then if somebody takes it from you, you just have to do it more and more and more. <laughs> so like, it's a total addiction. And I think that a lot of us do that with training too, is we, we, you know, we, we let the cart get ahead of the horse, lose focus on, you know, our eye goes off the ball. You know, we, we just lose focus in one way or another. The focus should be constant improvement. And the best way to constant improvement is by following a structured plan, doing it with consistency and adhering as best as you can to it. And that means rest. That doesn't just mean mm-hmm. the work, but you prescribe to the rest prescribed within that as well. Uh, if you can do that, then you're getting better. Chad puts a lot of hard work into making sure rest and work is all planned out. So, um, Let's get into some live questions. There's some great ones from Robert says, would you still recommend a try or TT specialty plan? If the event was a draft legal triathlon or duathlon, I have a couple points on this one. I'm curious to hear other people's thoughts on this. I'm, I'll go first. Yeah. Cause you got to run and swim. <laughs> if you're not doing that, you're kind of in trouble. That about covers it. <laughs> Mic drop. Moving on. No, uh, what he's asking is like, is there going to be like all these attacks and will it be like a normal road race? And, uh, I've done a couple, it's not like a normal road race where you're attacking and stuff. And unless you're a really bad runner and you're trying to like win overall, um, and it's like UCI, I mean, if it's UCI, it's, it's different. Um, but in general, what you do is you find a fast group and you're just working with that group and the tri plan is just perfect for that. It's like a, it's not even as hard as a breakaway too, because everyone's like holding back. So mm-hmm. it's, it's like you're riding a threshold and then you like recover and then you ride a threshold and you recover and everyone just kind of works together or someone's clinging on and then you run as fast as your legs can take you. So this, I would just keep that. That point you just brought up, Nate, is so great because I think a lot of us, like like Chad and I this morning, we're watching the Dauphiné, right? So like watching that race into my mind, like, yeah, when I go in road race, it's going to be exactly like that. It's nothing like that, like like <laughs> ever. Like what we see on TV is so rarely what we, us, you know, as amateurs experience because in most cases, it would be the most boring TV. It's like, okay, that person hit their limit that person hit their limit and everyone just kind of like slowly <laughs> drifts away. And then the last man standing or last woman standing is the one that wins. Right. It's like, it's way less dramatic. Like people are attacking and racing dynamically. Yeah. And even in draft legal try, it's probably in, like you said, Nate, you're going to find a group or you're going to ride your pace that you can ride and you'll probably be within there. So the, the ones I've done too, they're usually like not huge climbs or decisive moments. Uh, what it's kind of like a less frantic breakaway and it's not like a normal road race where it's really slow and then it's a decisive moment and it's just like incredibly hard. And that's where these like the rolling road race and those kind of plans and climbing road race, they're prepping you for these moments where it's decisive, where it's, this is more of a sustained effort working. To, it's more like a, nah, I mean, a, your friends are just group ride together, but you're not attacking each other. That's kind of like what it's like. I'm thinking, John, when we're going through like Washoe Valley. That's yeah. what it's like. Uh, no one we're knows not what just talking about besides you and me, but <laughs> we're not lollygagging. We're, we're, we're taking poles and we're rolling fast as we call, as we say it, rolling coal, right? Like we're keeping the pace up and we're going through. It's not like it's easy or something, but uh, yeah, exactly. And it's not, not attacking like each other. No, yeah. 
<laughs> and yeah. if someone does let him go because it's like that that's gonna so you gotta run afterwards you'll see him on the run <laughs> yeah. yeah the only thing you might do is bridge up to another group but even with that like that is hard it's probably way better to get the group to go with you like to all work together or something like that but even though i would not i would just do the the try plan as a, as a related aside, I think it's an absolute blast to watch draft legal, try the pro draft legal, try. I think it's really fun. Um, usually the fireworks are preserved for on the run for sure. Um, but you still see, and it's funny because like as a criterium racer, I look at it and I'm like, Oh man, that was a dumb move. But at the same time, it's a totally different game, right? Uh, like a, a lot of the racers do, but it's really fun to watch probably because I don't understand it enough. So it makes it exciting. Um, uh, even more exciting than it is. Okay. Uh, next one. Uh, this one says I trained to improve my average speed outside, uh, not to race. He says, I rarely hit VO two max during rides. So why should I train my VO two max indoors? Um, this is a, a there's, it doesn't, uh, what you do isn't like, uh, this is like the triathlete question. A lot of them say like, why would I ever try train VO two max if I'm doing long distance try where I just sit in below threshold, right? Chad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, basically when we, <laughs> Anything we do to train VO2 max is just to elevate our aerobic capacity just so we can do more work without touching on glycogen stores. I mean, it, it's almost that, that simple. I mean, we're going to work when we're working intensely. Yeah. We're going to, we're, we're going to rely largely on sugar, but that sugar runs out at some point we need to, at some point, unless your events are really short, I'm talking like pursuit short or shorter, you're, you're going to need a big aerobic capacity in order to do, in order to be competitive in any of these events. Mm-hmm. So. We, we train that VO2 max. You might never utilize it over the course of you know, whatever your event is, but we need that physiological backing to support what it is you are going to do. Yeah. It's a good point. Like, uh, there's, um, training VO2 max doesn't just benefit you. Like, let's say, I know that this is like an oversimplification, but just as you mentioned, I trained to improve my average speed. Let's say that you ride at 18 <clears throat> miles an hour at your average or 20 miles an hour at your VO2 max. It's not like when you train VO2 max, you're just going to get better at riding 20 miles an hour. We, you know, we're training energy systems that will help you in a variety of different scenarios across the board. Um, well, ideally it's that metaphorical tide that lifts all ships. So, so we mm-hmm. elevate VO2 max and everything comes up with it. Yep. It's, it kind of lifts the ceiling up so you can, so you can do more inside. Uh, so it definitely helps for sure. Um, okay. Uh, another one here, a uh, quick question for at the end, I ride a single speed bike with virtual power for my trainer road workouts. I don't know how you do that, by the way. Um, <laughs> says how much adaptation am I missing out on compared to using my geared bike? First thing I'd say, Peter, is if you're not able to hit your power targets, you're missing out. Um, but if you're able to hit your power targets, then you're not missing out. In fact, one cool thing is you're probably building a wide range of cadence that said, uh, you're probably leaving some efficiency on the table. Like you could probably do more if you stayed within a more self-selected range of cadence, but as long as you can hit your targets, you're not missing out. And that's the other thing with virtual power too, is that, you know, even though you don't compare your virtual power numbers to a power meter, you're still getting the same benefit of training with power. So yeah, it's all about hitting targets. The cadence has to be crazy because the recovery has to be what, like 20? Yeah. I don't yeah, get probably it. Probably less, probably <laughs> even less. And then yeah. if threshold is like 80 or 90 and then VO2 max has to be like way high. It's, I mean, I guess single speeders RPM. have to. Yeah, it's just weird. <laughs> but that, uh, that's how you're going to race if you're a single speed racer. So no, it's, it's the, pretty the, specific. The low cadence is at a high wattage usually for single speeders. And the high cadence is a low wattage. It's the opposite of what you would think um, mm-hmm. you would, you you would normally do as a single speed re- racer. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, that's true. 
Yeah, not even wattage necessarily as much as force too, right? Like uh, low versus high force that you'll be going against. Because when uh, and if you watch like Red Hook Crit, when the riders are going really fast, they're still putting out. They're still they still have a high amount of force that they're putting out to be able to fight wind. Yeah, that's that's a good point. I'm thinking of rather than like a crit, I'm thinking of a mountain biker single speed. That's yeah, what so I mm-hmm. I default to mountain bikers, but <laughs> normally they're high low cadence, high fall, high force. That equals high wattage. Yeah. Like, doesn't everybody yeah. recover at 20 RPM? I mean, that's not normal. <laughs> it's I, I have, I have zero desire to ever ride single speeds and, and I'm not saying that it's like something that somebody else shouldn't do, but man, like that just seems like a, a really, like, I, I love gears. I, 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 I heart gears. I'd wear a shirt that says that, like, I, I don't ever lament having my gears. So I really want to get a t-shirt made with Janelle Spilker's quote, which is I never met a gear. I didn't like. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Speaking of which, uh, <laughs> Amber, do you know, are you going to be on Shimano or SRAM for Cape Epic? Probably Shimano, but I don't know for sure. Uh, John or Chad, you're on SRAM, SRAM, right? Will you guys get the 52 big dish? You might not be aware, but there was 50 is usually the Eagle one. He just came out with a 52. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm asked John first. John, would you ever buy that? The 52? Um, like, yeah, for certain courses, probably like it will be a big jump from, uh, I don't even, I think it's like a 48 to a 52, I think is the jump in the gears. So it'll be a big jump. Sure. But if any, and I'm not too proud to admit because there's tons of races where I've been where it's, if I had that easier gear, it would just would have made things so much more manageable. Mm -hmm. Um, but uh, I didn't have it. So if I was doing Cape Epic, I would put the 52 on no question. Single track six. I think you, you talked about a long, like you're at 40 RPM for like an hour. Yes. It was so steep. Hmm. Yeah. I, I think it's a good buy. And the other thing you can do then is, uh, so if you have a 32 up front, you have a 52 in the back, you can go to a 34 in the front and it's like having a 50 in the back. Mm-hmm. So if you do need the top end gears, which actually a Telluride, I needed, by the way, Telluride had this really big climb that was so steep. Like I walked, I walked 15 minutes of that race, pushing wow. up this wet, like slippery climb. And everyone around me was Keegan rode the whole thing up for 10 feet, he said, which is crazy. And he had a 36, which is <laughs> insane. The 36, 51, yeah. but still like, and I had a 32, 50 and everyone around me had that too. And none of us could ride it. And he was on wow. Aspens, which the Aspens clear mud well, but they do not. They don't grip. grip mud. <laughs> they do not grip mud well at all. Uh, yeah. Anyways, that just shows you like it, it crazy, the skill level, not just the Watts to be, oh, able yeah. to be able to ride that. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, it's impressive. Shimano has a 51, so it's really close. Um, uh, and that's a, a pretty big old cassette that you have on the back there too. So I just actually switched up to a 34 from a 32 and it is amazing how much faster I can go at high speed sections. However, on the trail, man, I hardly ever use it. Like if I'm on a fire road, yes. But if it's like trail, even Jeep yeah. trail, I hardly ever use the go all the way down to my 10 tooth in the rear um for what it's for us at cape epic my teammate my teammate tells me sophia she goes go the 34 and get the 52 so we can go faster on the flats (laughs) i'm like (laughs) but i think what we might do is maybe on certain stages like the prologue i might keep the do a 34 52 just because pretty much look at the stage if there's sustained stuff where it's those two percent downhills for like 10 miles where you'll, you'll just, you will spin out those mm-hmm. stages. You want it, but other times not having to like, you'd slip less, not having to, uh, get out of the saddle or 
uh, not having to walk your bike. It's just, or having a higher cadence. It's just so much easier over many hours and you're going to be so fatigued. So normal climbs after on day four, a 20% mm. grade will feel or 30% grade will feel insanely, insanely hard. Mm-hmm. I, I just tested, by the way, going to that 34, I kept the same chain for, for like a two rides just to check to see, and I didn't lengthen my chain or shorten my chain, anything like that. No chain change length. And it, it still shifted fine, um, on axis. Like there were no chain, there was no change in shifting quality. Yeah. Do you think I can go 50 to 52 without changing the same chain size? I don't know. seems like I need an extra link or two. Someone put that in the comments. Yeah. It, it yeah. just looks so big. That 52 looks huge, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, since you asked me, I'm just going to do the 1052 with a 32 and a 34 ring. So basically what you just described. Yeah. Smart. Which by the way, uh, having ridden with Chad over the past two weekends now, um, I think that we forget sometimes Chad's a good mountain biker. Like he, he has roots that like go deep. You can tell into mountain biking because he makes the right decisions. Like the little subconscious things, like when I follow him on the trail, he makes the right decisions. Like, whereas a lot of the time, a less experienced rider would hem and haw or kind of go halfway in between or take the wrong decision. It's almost like this, it's subconsciously programmed, kind of like what you were talking about, Amber, to like that you're working on programming. It's Mm -hmm. like it's there with Chad. And the cool thing is it's been dormant for many years for you, Chad, but it's Mm. still there. So it's it's fun to watch. Um, It's pretty cool. Yeah. Okay. Last question. Uh, this one's from Rostin says, what do you, what do you all think of Cush core tire inserts for cross country racing? So I am like 100% convert on tire inserts for everything beside a road bike. Heck, maybe even a road bike someday. I don't know. Um, because the, not just for flat protection, but it introduces like an entirely different handling characteristic to your bike. And it's really favorable, at least in, in my experience. So I, I don't under, especially cyclocross, every single cyclocross racer should have tire inserts. There's never a reason you shouldn't like, that's probably the most, uh, the best application for them that I can even think of. Why is that Every fun? other question we answer, we're like, oh, it depends. You got to experiment. It depends. You know, there's all these individual characteristics. John's just laying it out. Nope. It's I, everybody yeah. just I'm do it. I'm a firm believer in them. <laughs> I, be, because it, so number one, it helps hold things on the bead. And in conjunction with that, it allows you to run lower pressure. So you get better traction. You also, in most cases, then also get better rolling resistance, especially on an, a bumpy surface like cyclocross many times puts you on. So like, I know he's asking about cross country. So same, same effect, like, um, bumpy grass, bumpy roads, uh, even broken up asphalt, stuff like that. When you run that lower pressure, your, your, your tire can deform more easily and it can carry more momentum through that sort of stuff. But on mountain biking, I can clear technical sections that would be difficult and I can just clear them relatively easily because of the fact that I'm running lower traction, like the, a, a tricky technical climb section or a technical switchback, anything like that. And I actually lent Nate my tire inserts and I've gone back to without tire inserts. And I feel like a fish out of water. Like I have to run way higher pressure. I have to run 20 PSI in the front and then 21 and a half in the rear. And then, uh, you know, I've been running, I was running all the way down to like 16 and 17 PSI with uh, Pepe's tire noodles inserts that I was running before. And man, it just made such a difference. And I actually had to change my suspension as a result of the whole thing. Cause it changed the feel of my bike. Lots of nerd stuff with it, but I think they're really, they're really helpful. And yeah, they do help for flats. And I know that that's why most people get them or talk about them is because it stops or it helps with pinch flats. Cause it's something in between your rim and your tire. But I find the real benefit is the handling. It's, it's really impressive. And John, oh, you, you used them. Yeah. Me? Yeah. No, they're put on my Shimano wheel set instead of my SRAM wheel set. 
They're probably yeah. Envy's and not my Roval's. And that doesn't have the right free hub. We got to switch the free hub out and then we can then try them. But, so you haven't used them. Okay. Nope. Uh, they, are, they do increase weight. Mm-hmm. So John, what do you think about if it's a non-technical cyclocross course with some big climbs? I'm thinking like Benelli or something. Mm-hmm. Would you still choose to have inserts? Um, yeah, I still would. I would want inserts at all times just because of the fact that it increases traction so much. It kind of like allows you to settle down quite a lot. Like things that are usually like questionable and you have to use more contraction and force and everything else to be able to hold traction on steep climbs or off cambers or anything like that. It just really makes things smooth. Even like riding through like bumpy grass, it's smoother. Like your bike moves a lot less. It's it's a small thing. And, and for a Cape Epic, a hundred percent, I would have it for the flat protection, if anything else, just because it really helps there. But they do like Cush core. I'm not, I'm not sold on Cush core for cross country racing. Cause it's really heavy. I think it's like 160 grams per wheel. So if you add that up, like you spend a lot of money to get a wheel set that's down to like 1300 grams, and then you're instantly making it like a 1700 gram wheel set. Um, which I know you don't just buy wheels for weight. You buy them for handling. But man, um, there are other lighter inserts out there. Like those Pepe's tire noodles, I think are like 60 grams each, something like that, maybe a little more. Um, and then you can, there are tons of other ones, a tubo light or some that I just ordered. I want to try those. There's like, you can DIY and actually you can go to trainerroadcom slash forum. And there's threads about inserts where people have shared how they're making their own or reviewing different ones that they've used. So but I think they're awesome. They are a total pain to change your tire with though. <laughs> so and something to think about with Cape Epic, if you flat, you'll have to take your insert out and then somehow carry your insert with you. Or hopefully there's race support where you can drop it off if you have to put a tube in there if you can't plug a uh, flat. So there are downsides to it too. So yeah, I think that covers it on that one. Any more thoughts? No, I'm looking at the weight. It says Pepe says, isn't there like a Pepe cyclocross though? I don't know, but I'm looking at the I think there is. Yeah. Yeah. For a uh, rim width of 27 to uh, 38 millimeters, that is 180 grams. For the set, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there, um, for what it's worth, I think it's, um, there is, you know, even if you do have a weight difference, if you can improve the handling characteristics of your bike and then also, you know, help yourself relax in sections where it would otherwise take a whole lot of energy, it's probably going to be um, a benefit. So. I love them. I don't want to ride without them. And I feel like I'm Bambi on ice (laughs) without them right now. So, um, anyways, I hope that helps for everybody. We covered quite a lot of topics on this episode or wide range, at least tire inserts all the way to EPO and back. So I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, uh, let us know by giving us a review. We really appreciate that. And then give this episode a thumbs up on YouTube if you're watching right now. And once again, submit your questions to trainerroad.com slash podcast. There's a form there where you can submit them. You do this every week and all of you are awesome for doing it. We get so many questions. I wish we could answer them all. And also, if you want to be on the Successful Athletes podcast, stay tuned because there's going to be a better way to do it than just sending it, sending it to my email. But you can just send me an email at jonathan at trainerroad.com and share with me how Trainer Road has helped you become a successful athlete. And that doesn't mean winning something that doesn't have to mean some grand story could just be an FTP increase could just be anything that you've done that you feel like is any sort of success. So don't worry about it. If you share something and you feel like you're embarrassed about it, I'm not going to make fun of you for it. It's awesome. I'll praise you for it. So, uh, with all of that said, thanks everybody. And we will talk to you next week. Just like you never make fun of me. If it says Nate at trainerroad.com, I will, but everybody else know. <laughs> Nate's going to be emailing Jonathan for kudos. 
Bye, everyone. Bye, everybody. Bye, everyone. Take care. Bye, everybody.